0: So if that sounds like something you wanna to listen to, keep listening. Hi, this is Lisa and I have a new guest joining with me here today it is Chris Cat. Uh, say hi Chris hello hello um, I have been wanting to get you on here forever. We've been kind of chatting back and forth um, mm. we've known each other for a long time before the podcast but this is this movie that you selected is something that uh, that we've talked a lot about and I think uh, our audience will really enjoy hearing your take on it. Um, so yeah so what movie are we discussing today?
1: Today we are discussing one of the movies that really, when I started getting into anime, I was gravitated, I always gravitated towards the movies, um, because I've always been a movie guy. And we are talking about 1997's Perfect Blue.
0: Yes, and this is actually the second animated movie that we've discussed on here. Mm -hmm. And I guess, like, this is just another example of how something can be animated and be pretty serious adult material.
1: Totally, Um, yeah.
0: Yeah, and so I I think this this is going to be an interesting episode because I've noticed a lot of people in the group and a lot of the people that I get feedback from, they like a lot of things that this movie either influenced or the movie has qualities about it that share some of their favorite directors and things like that. So I, I think this is a good segue. Maybe I can... You know, win people over
1: <laughs> slowly. <laughs> that's that's what I've done too over the years. Like uh, my best friend, I've always he still hasn't watched yet, which I'm kind of like a little grumpy about. But it's one. It's a movie that I try to push on people that don't like anime because it does, like you said, it covers all of these things. Even the DVD box cover talks about like Walt Disney and uh, Alfred Hitchcock, and it's it's pretty on point. Like this is a movie that I sell to people as. Whether or not you like animated films being serious, this is a movie you should watch.
0: I completely agree. Uh, you know, there's a there's a perception. I talked about this a lot in our Akira episode. Mm-hmm. Um, that you know, animation is for children, and no matter what you tell people, even some of the biggest movie buffs, even some of the movie podcasts I listen to, they yeah. they they don't really respect anime or animation, really. As, uh, you know a serious cinematic genre and right. and th- I think this is one of those movies that that really breaks that barrier if you'll give it a chance but I've literally loaned this movie to people and they basically just <laughs> held on to it for two weeks and give it back to me
1: <laughs> yeah same same here
0: <laughs> so um, another reason why I'm excited to talk to you about this movie Chris is because you have a unique view on this movie now because you actually lived in Japan
1: Yes. Yes. I went. Go ahead.
0: Sorry.
1: For the better part, sorry, for the better part of the last two years, I lived in Japan, and I went there for school to finish my degree, and it did give me like a different perspective on this movie. Uh, I saw. I don't claim to be an expert on the Japanese people by any means, but being there and seeing, I did go to a lot of the entertainment districts, and I saw pop idols perform and I I went to these shows and I could see the interactions between the fans and the idols and all this and I I heard the news stories of like the darker side of it firsthand because it's in the news all the time there and I know this movie was done in 1997 and it's 20 years later but it's still relevant I think because the idol industry hasn't really changed so much in my opinion and Mm -hmm. it's gotten to a point to where it's I would say it might even be bigger, like there's a, I don't know if you're aware of like AKB 48, they're like this gigantic juggernaut idol group that's just kind of dominating Japan right now, and some of the stories that come out of there from behind the scenes are pretty dark.
0: Yeah, I, I would also say that this movie really predicted how, I guess, that interaction between idol and fan uh it's gotten more personal for us because we Mm -hmm. have also an online persona and then a real persona, who we really are. In in other words, what we project onto Instagram and Facebook and then who we are in person. And, I mean, when this movie came out, I don't think catfishing existed. Right. You know? And just a lot of things about um, that the online community has made possible, like online stalking and things like that. Mm. I mean, that stuff is even more relevant now and I think more personal now than when this movie came out. So Definitely. Yeah. And, and as far as the, the Japanese uh, pop uh, pop idol um, craze, I guess, if you want to call it that. Sure. um, Well, I think the biggest thing that's changed from when I was like a teenager and I saw this movie to now is that Mm. that, that culture has spilled over to the U S so, you know, I think that uh, that people watching this today, um, they would have a different perspective on it because you know, maybe not J-pop as much, but K-pop is really big here now, and I feel like that's sort of exploding over here. The concerts. I know a girl that drove from. I think she lives in Baltimore, and Mm -hmm. she drove all the way down to Dallas to come to a concert with a friend here.
2: Wow! Yeah.
0: She said it was like packed to see like a K-pop group. And I was like, man, you were, you know, you're lucky because when I was younger and I, I did because of anime, listen to some music like this. I mean, it wasn't like I was ever going to see them in concert, you know, like that (laughs) wasn't going to happen. So it's it's pretty interesting.
1: Yeah, it is interesting. And like, even looking at the, like the K-pop and the J-pop, like the idols, they do have them in both countries. But I guess living in Japan, I did get to see like that difference between the two and like the K-pop is... It's a bit more adult centered. It's targeted more towards adults for adults. The uh-huh. idol, the idol system is still kind of, or the industry I should say, I should say is still. It's more about the purity of the girl, and it's about youth, and it's about innocence, and it's about being chased, and that's part of the marketing for the Japanese pop idols. And I think that plays a lot into this movie as to why uh, the main character Mima is so oppressed, really, because they yeah. do can. Like, there's a lot of these groups, you hear some of these stories coming out that these pop idols are, their l- private lives are controlled to a certain extent. Not all of them, of course. It's not every group. But there are still some of those, I guess, remnants from this era that where the movie came from and before, where they are. They can't date. They can't do all sorts of things because they have to keep that image for the public.
0: Yeah, I was explaining to someone the other day about how also... Like you said, their private lives are controlled in terms of their dating. Um, Mm. I think they also... Wasn't there a pop idol like a year or two ago?
1: Mm.
0: There was a rumor that she was gay. And that was like a huge, big deal. Yeah, Um, yeah. She like had a breakdown because people were so upset at her about that. And then like uh, also if there's any sort of addiction. Like over here we're kind of used to... Oh, it's totally fine if we see uh, a celebrity falling out of a limo drunk, or
3: mm-hmm.
0: you know they end up in rehab. We just kind of expect it. But right. over there, I mean, that's that's your career's over. You're done. You're not gonna, yeah
1: exactly. You're not
0: coming back from that. So like like you said, um, I guess it makes the the idol seem more pure, but it's also you know controlling, not genuine, and it's yeah. just an interesting yeah. part of that culture, really.
1: Yeah, it really is. And like you said, the there was the story that you mentioned. And there was another story where a pop idol was seen coming out of a man's apartment like in the middle of the day. And that became a scandal. And she had this huge apology thing where she actually shaved her head. And like it was a big deal. Like you could see the the stress that she was under that this thing caused her to react in such a strong way.
0: Oh, I saw that video. Okay, that's actually what I was thinking of. Oh, okay. I was equating it to the other story. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. you're right. Um, but yeah, I think I think expressing all that before we kind of dive into the movie sort of gives people, I guess, uh, you know, a look at why some of the things right. in this movie happen, mm-hmm. and uh, and yeah, and then we can kind of sort of dive into it a little further. Um, well, uh so this movie is Perfect Blue. It came out like you said, nineteen ninety seven. Isn't that weird to think it was twenty years ago? <laughs> I know.
1: It is weird. It's upsetting. I keep, <laughs> I keep I know, I keep seeing things and like, oh, that was that was fifteen years ago. That was twenty years ago and yeah. I have had a lot of old moments over the past few years, I think.
0: Yeah. Well when when do you think you first saw this movie? Do you remember?
1: Uh, I don't remember my first viewing of it, but I know that it was on D V D. It was probably, I would say like 2000 or 2001, um, because I was into, I started slowly getting into anime in junior high, and then in high school, I gravitated more, like I kind of said, towards the movies, and it was mostly like the horror and the action movies, like uh, Demon City, Shinjuku, and Ninja Scroll, things like that. (laughs) Yeah. So those are what I was into, and I didn't really get into anything else, but I got the dvd for perfect blue and gave it a shot because it had alfred hitchcock on the write-up on the front of the, the box i was like well i, I need to see this because i was already a gigantic horror fan at the time and so it was just me alone in my room watching this movie and just like hypnotized by the journey that this movie takes you on because it's really i mean it's a psychological thriller but it puts you in the place of the characters intentionally and it's it's crazy to watch i watched it i probably I remember I probably watched it two or three times within a couple days just because I was... In the beginning, I was trying to figure out, okay, well, where is it going? What's real? What's not? And then I kind of realized, you know, just go along for the journey.
0: Yeah. So that's so funny that you say that. I I think I had the exact same experience where I saw this on DVD and just bought it. Like I was like, I don't know if this is going to be good or not. But just based Mm. on the description on the back and even the cover, I was like... I'm just going to take a shot at this and see what I think. And I watched it like you alone. And in fact, I was kind of like, I don't know if this is because I'm a girl, but (laughs) I was a teenager, (laughs) but I was like very afraid of my parents finding out that I saw this and that I owned it. (laughs) So I just kind of like I never told them about it. I never like bragged, oh, I saw this movie or anything, kind of kept it a secret. I don't even know if I told my friends I saw it because I went to like a pretty conservative school and so i just kind of <laughs> i kept it on the dl i didn't really right. advertise it and it's funny because it, it seemed i think that added a level of like i mean i guess i was kind of innocent in a way right <laughs> so like yeah. we're relating even more to this character but yeah, um, exactly. yeah but it was funny because you know looking back on it um i was just so i i guess intimidated by the the suspense and horror in this movie mm-hmm. and it's very like I will say if you're not, if you don't want to see something graphic. I was reading online yeah. actually right before we started talking that you know there's an R cut of this film and there's an NC17. And, oh really? Yeah, and I think I've only seen the NC17 cut. I don't I don't think I've seen a cut where anything was you
2: know, Yeah
0: censored or anything like that so i would say if you're not into that or pretty graphic violence for a cartoon um you might want to skip it because it's pretty right
1: yeah i would say like if this was a live-action movie it would definitely be a hard r it wouldn't be Mm -hmm. nc-17 but i think due to the fact that it is animated in the united states they would have to release it as like you said in nc-17 because it's it goes further than you would expect Uh, an animated movie even an anime movie and people are more uh, savvy about what anime means at this point in the United States but it would still be a surprise to a lot of people I think because it does get pretty bloody and there's not explicit nudity in it but there there's a tough scene in the middle of it that's yeah it's shot in a way where it's not graphic but it's extremely powerful
0: I think it's disturbing because yeah it's not what's happening it's people's reactions exactly yeah the tension building, it's just, it's done right. really, really well, yeah, so, so yeah, so I guess, uh, so we both saw this alone, um, <laughs> that's not creepy at all, but, right. um, but yeah, I, I guess, yeah, I think I was probably, man, I think it also around, around 2000, so I think 16 or 17, so, yeah, I didn't realize how new it was when it came out, I think it was released in the US in 1999, so it would have been, okay. that year, pretty close to it, if, if yeah. I, you know, didn't even rent it, I just bought it right back when you could rent stuff Um.
1: right (laughs) Uh, yeah i'm pretty sure i was the same i bought it off the shelf at the time i didn't realize it was that new at the time either um yeah it's not until actually looking back at it and looking at the dates uh leading up to our conversation tonight i was like oh it was actually really new i thought it was because a lot of the anime i got into had already been released for three four five years before i ever got to it
0: yeah i remember being an anime snob even back then like you know, everyone would get into these animes if we're 10, 15 years old. and right. And it's so popular. And I would think, like, you know, there's new, newer stuff that's come out. But it, it right. took such a long time for things to pick up steam over here. Yeah. That, you know, people kind of had a perception of what anime was, but it was actually much older stuff. Um, right. So I have a question for you. I was thinking, I, I don't normally do this. Usually I just read the synopsis. Uh But I was thinking so much happens in this movie, I don't know if it'd be too long, but I was considering reading the plot, like, Mm
3: -hmm.
0: just because there's a lot of different things that happen. I'll I'll read, like, a really short synopsis, and then maybe a longer one.
1: Okay, yeah, I think that'll work, because it's it's tough. Like, if you describe this movie linearly, it doesn't really give you the sense of what the movie is, you know?
0: That's true. Yeah, well, maybe I'll just keep... In that case, maybe I'll read the quick synopsis, and then... I'm just going to keep the longer one up for myself just to kind of make sure I'm keeping sure. it straight. <laughs> right, right. Um, and, you know, that way we kind of have that guide. Um, yeah. But, yeah, okay, so here we go. The synopsis for Perfect Blue. A retired pop singer-turned-actress's sense of reality is shaken when she is stalked by an obsessed fan and seemingly the ghost of her past. That's it? That's um, it,
1: yeah. <laughs> I mean, that that's is really... what happens. <laughs> yeah, that is, yeah. I think, but that's good because... I, w- I mean, we are talking, spoilers here. I think if you haven't seen the movie and you're listening to this, you probably should go watch the movie beforehand because it's one of those that you kind of have to discover for yourself. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that is a good plot synopsis, but any plot synopsis isn't going to be able to relate the movie itself because it's such a visual movie, I think. Like most That's of the. True. Stuff happens, sure, but it's the way that it's portrayed on the screen and how the scenes are tied together that really gives you the sense of what the movie's about and not just what's happening.
0: The one exception I would say to that is I do imagine there will be some people that might listen to us kind of dissect the movie. Right. And it may inspire them to watch it because that actually happened to me. Yeah. When I think it was Fight Club came out, and mm-hmm. my best friend went and saw Fight Club, and I don't remember if you remember how they marketed that movie, but it was nothing like what that movie's about. Like, I yeah, it,
1: it was more like guys beating each other up kind of movie. Kind of, if I remember correctly, I don't remember the marketing that well. I guess.
0: Yeah, I. I that's what I remember. I remember it was like, look, it's you know Brad Pitt beating up. Oh yeah. Party. Famous and, people fighting. Yeah. Yeah, and like. Uh, I thought, yeah, I'm gonna skip that one. And I actually had a close friend basically beg me to see it. Yeah. And I was like, I just I just don't wanna see that. Like I just I know you love action movies. I, I didn't mm-hmm. at the time. And she said, Okay, well I'm gonna tell you how it ends. I'm gonna tell you exactly what happens. <laughs> and she did and I was like, I wanna watch it right now. All right. <laughs> so sometimes it works that way.
1: Sometimes it works. Sometimes. I yeah. I think because there is there is a large element of mystery in this movie, although it doesn't necessarily portray it that way. Because you so like you said, there's a the main character, Mima, is a pop idol who's transitioning into acting, not of her own choice necessarily. And she has a stalker. And so but you are shown who this stalker is right away True. and you don't you don't realize there's a mystery until later on which i think is one of the really brilliant parts of this movie
0: yeah this movie it has a lot of genres in it like i mean yeah. it, on the surface it's just a psychological thriller but then mm-hmm. it sort of turns into a you know, a murder mystery at the same time. Right. So it, and it's just, you know, it's very disorienting. Like I was reading Mm -hmm. a lot of reviews for this movie and I still feel like maybe general audiences don't necessarily understand it because I was reading stuff like, Oh, you know, towards the end it sort of falls apart or it's too convoluted. And I'm like, man, I don't think that that's true at all. Like it's not Yeah, literally everything is explained, but maybe, um, you know, you having some window into that culture and myself as well, even though, again, we're not experts, but just having that exposure to it, maybe makes it a little bit easier for us to digest. And so it doesn't feel as, I guess, overwhelming, you know?
1: Yeah, I guess so. Because I think you and I both do have, we come into the movie knowing about like idols and kind of at least a loose approximation of the system because we've heard the stories. People not n- aware of that have to catch up with that in the beginning. Plus, following this plot that does it does mess with time. The timeline is confusing, but it's supposed to be confusing because that's how Mima feels, and that's why it was done that way. Because I read the same well similar reviews to what you said, saying that the Mima was all right, but the time the timeline got so convoluted like you said towards the middle late middle part of the movie that it didn't work and i'm like that's kind of where the movie picks up steam like that's the lead-in to the final act and that's entirely every single thing on the screen in this movie is done for a reason and that's another one of the things i love about this movie is the layers that it has like if you watch every portion of the screen and even the edits from one scene to the next to the next everything matters on the screen. And I think that's one of the great things about anime and animated films is that you can do that kind of thing and make it seamless. Whereas in maybe a live action, it would be a little bit more difficult, especially with like the budget.
0: Totally agree. I think movies like this are maybe more possible now. Yeah. And that's why you're getting, um, some of the movies that we have like inception or something like that, where 10 or 20 years ago, there's no way, you know, um, but yeah, I, I think that uh, that people would be surprised if they watch this movie, just the attention to detail and like you said, the editing. I mean it's shot like a real film. It's not treated yeah. like, you know, a kid's film or something. Right. Um well, uh let's talk a little bit. I don't have my usual I guess quick facts that I that I have. I just kind of dove into it a little bit here. So- um I will say, after you finished listening to this, a couple of people suggested this YouTube, vi- YouTube video, mm-hmm. and I completely agree. I don't know, have, did you see, it's called Why Perfect Blue is Terrifying?
1: No, I haven't no. seen it.
0: Okay, um, if you happen to look it up, that one focuses on the movie being more relatable in terms of how our interaction online kind of mirrors some of the things about the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's just a, a really cool reference that people may want to check out. Um, but next I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about Satoshi Kone and I'm going to try not to like fangirl and freak out for <laughs> right. an entire hour and keep yeah. it fairly succinct, but he is, I actually would count him as one of my favorite directors.
1: I would agree with that statement. Yeah. Same, yeah. same for me.
0: It, it's, it's sad that his, his life was cut short. Um, mm. and, uh, um, I think he died in, on uh, 2010, which it doesn't Ooh. seem like it was that long ago. I remember yeah. reading about it, but um, for those that don't know, you know, a lot of people when they point to, I guess, a really influential anime anime director, they would talk about Hayao Mizaki. And, you know, sure. they always refer to him as the Disney of Japan. Mm-hmm. And I would I would agree with that to a certain extent, although he does have some movies that I think are a little more adult, like Princess Mononoke, that kind of really tripped the line between being Disney and something a little more serious. But yeah. um, Satoshi Kon doesn't get as much um, exposure. And I think that's a shame because I, I really think that... Like you kind of mentioned that you kind of try to push this on your friends that that don't watch anime, <laughs> right? Uh, I think a lot of people would be really surprised by the subject matter in his in his films, um, mm-hmm. like this one. They tend to deal a lot with, you know, duality and uh, and reality and mm-hmm. and just a lot of psychological thriller type stories. And even when they're not psychological, they still kind of play with. The concept of reality and, and yeah. anime you know it's animation in general is just such a good medium to do that in so right you know i would say that if you're a fan of of some directors that do that like uh christopher nolan or aronofsky um mm-hmm. i think dennis villanova you could even say is yeah. that a new one yeah. um but if you if you like things like that um th- th- then he's a director that you would want to check out um Absolutely. In, a, in addition to Perfect Blue, he's got Paprika, Millennium Actress, Tokyo Godfathers. Mm. Uh, one of my favorite shows he, that he did was Paranoia Agent.
2: Yeah, it was good.
0: I love that show. I always tell people it's like the Twilight Zone if it were darker, you know? Right, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's like, I, I just, I love it. But um, And then I think the first thing I ever saw that he did was a short that was a collection in a collection Mm -hmm. and it was called memories. Did you ever see that?
1: I don't think I've seen that one. No.
0: Okay. So it's like three short animated films and he did one called magnetic Rose.
1: Okay. I've heard of that. No, I haven't seen that yet though. It
0: is really good. It's, it's got all the same elements that everything else he's done has, except that Mm -hmm. it's a short. It's just about like a, it's a space kind of adventure. These, uh, These astronauts, or they're like, I think they're like uh, trash gatherers or something. I don't Uh know. But they they stumble on this old spaceship, and they go inside, and it's essentially a mansion, and everyone's gone. But Mm. you find out that the owner of it was like a famous opera singer that died, and she Uh. may have killed her lover. But then the whole place starts kind of coming to life, so it's kind of horror at the same time. Yeah. And it's really like surreal and... Like psychological, she the, that place messes with people's memories and right. It, it's really really good. I That's think awesome. I, the first time I saw that, I was like, wow. You know, from then on, I think I was kind of a fan. I didn't even make the connection though. I don't think when I yeah. saw this movie that it was right. the same guy, but but yeah, I, I think those are all really good ones to check out.
1: I think it's interesting because I did uh, when I was in Japan, I was going to school and I took a lot of film classes and specifically like Japanese film classes and stuff and we got into like japanese auteurs and things like that and i think when you look at satoshi Kon, like he was definitely an auteur like you can see definite themes recurring throughout his uh films and animation like uh the duality and the perception of perception of reality and even the performance thing like millennium actress i love that movie as well and uh, like you were just saying in the magnetic rose there was also that idea of something that different perceptions from the outside, but also from the inside of who we are and who we see other people as.
0: I really, you mentioned Millennium Actress. I like, uh, I I was watching, I think, either a behind the scenes or reading something, but he actually made Millennium Actress because after this movie, he was Mm -hmm. like, how do I, how do I do that same concept about, you know, uh, I guess, with playing with time, playing with Uh perception of reality and not make it horror? Right. And so that's kind of what Millennium Actress is. I can't yeah. even watch that movie without crying. It's so. I know. <laughs> good. But I feel like that one's an even harder sell. Like, <laughs> yeah. Start with this one. If you can accept this one, maybe you can watch Millennium Actress. But if you yeah. find this, you know, kind of disorienting, I would say Paprika and Millennium Actress will put you over the edge. So. <laughs>
1: right. <laughs> I mean, but this yeah, is more trippy. And I think also Millennium Actress is a little more. If you know more about Japanese film in general, I guess, then it's a little bit easier to get into because to me, uh, the Millennium actress, the main character feels a lot like a a Japanese actress, Setsuko Hara, who was kind of the same thing. She like isolated herself after a certain point and she died a few years ago. But it has a lot of it feels based in reality, just like Perfect Blue is based in the reality of the idols. But the two films, to me, feel like companion pieces, but from different sides of Like, one is negative and one is more positive, you know?
0: Definitely. And actually, now that you talk about that isolating thing, um, that was in Magnetic Magnetic Rose too, because Mm -hmm. what happened was this opera singer lost her husband, debatably killed him, maybe, maybe not. Um, And then she just kind of isolated herself. And when they visit this place that she lives in, they find her deceased right um and so you're kind of like what's ha-, you know what happened and um yeah. and so it, it and she was like you said a performer so man yeah it's a lot of parallels there.
1: <laughs> yeah you can just see the the common themes so he's definitely one of the greatest i think uh auteurs of japanese film and like world cinema in general i think because of the the way that he takes you on that journey and puts you in the characters like he he really you have to be of a certain mind i think to maybe watch his movies like we've been talking about this whole time because not everybody's going to i wouldn't say have the patience but not everybody will watch a movie in the way that you need to watch it which is just let it take you where it's going to take you you know
0: No, it's really interesting you say that because I think in a lot of the movies that we've talked about, because I feel like, you know, being a big movie fan, it's kind of like being a big music fan, where Mm -hmm. in the beginning you're listening to kind of what everyone's listening to, but the further that you get along, it kind of starts getting a little more obscure, a little archier, you know. So uh, I have noticed that um, that's kind of a reoccurring theme in, in movies we talk about. Mm. Uh, I would say that a movie like this, it just really resonates with me because I like movies like this. I like movies that are uh, deeply psychological and a little disorienting. And I think it's really interesting when a director is able to make you feel what the characters are feeling. Exactly. And not just have a straight narrative. Um, My favorite film ever, uh, The Shining, I feel, is like that. You know, Mm. as the movie is happening, as the characters are losing their grip on reality, so are you. Right. And when you can do that and still have the movie make sense,
2: <laughs> right. it's really yeah.
0: good. And there's some movies that, that start to lose that, you know, yeah. making sense. And I'll still enjoy them, but I think this separates for me, like when a movie is truly a, a, just a complete work that's impressive, is when they, it can kind of skate the line and do both. I think it's a, a real challenge. Absolutely. Well, um, do you want to talk a little bit? about, so, so I was reading, uh, an article that I kind of posted in, in our little private group about, uh, this movie, about it being the 20th anniversary and stuff like that. But it Mm -hmm. also kind of talked about not saying that it necessarily directly inspired these movies, but that Mm -hmm. it's interesting to think that this movie came out before, uh, movies like Black Swan, Inception, Fight Club, and yet shares like a lot of elements from those stories and I guess I I mentioned that because you know we think of some of these concepts I think as newer than they really are you know right and I'm sure he gained a lot of inspiration uh from someone else but it's just interesting to me like how many similarities are in some of these films um so yeah you know
1: absolutely I think uh you mentioned Aronofsky earlier and I think he's I mean, he actually put one of the scenes from Perfect Blue in one of his movies, like in Requiem for a Dream, the Jennifer Connelly character, she screams in a bathtub and it's shot and edited exactly like the scene where Mima is screaming in the bathtub in this movie. So to say that Satoshi Kon influenced people, I think, yeah, I think it's an understatement, but also those... Those ideas and those themes and the way he structured his movie, like you said, you can see it in all these other movies. And even if they're not directly inspired, I think that it's more of like that general inspiration. Satoshi Kon, his movie is so powerful that I think a lot of people, filmmakers, watch it and they get inspired from it, even if they're not necessarily emulating it, it comes out in other ways. And then it just becomes part of the general culture. And I guess kind of like in the movie, how uh, Mima's acting and her singing become part of the, the cultural pantheon, if if you want to call it that, like it becomes part of, it doesn't become theirs so much anymore. It becomes the world's. And that's kind of what I think the ideas and the way that Satoshi Kon made movies, it just becomes part of cinema, at that mm-hmm. point and it, and it does influence it it spreads it, it all he and of course Cohn was influenced by people that came before him as well i'm not sure of his exact influences but you know it it all it all comes from somewhere and it it changes and it, it evolves over time into different things
0: well i read that he was an apprentice of director katsuhiro otomo okay so that was uh for for those of you that might not have heard that episode or are familiar with it but that's uh the director and manga creator of akira yeah so i mean that guy was a complete genius like yeah you know on another level it's like I, i don't know when i when i was doing that episode i i didn't realize that the same guy created and directed and designed all the characters i mean that's Insane. That's crazy, yeah. But, I mean, that guy was just... To be able to do all that and have a good film come out of it, like... Right, You know, yeah. it's amazing, so I, I definitely see his influence, and I mean, I don't think anybody in the anime industry is not influenced by what Otomo did. Right. But, um, you know, nobody's ever really come close to that, in my opinion, but mm-hmm. I think Satoshi Gon gets maybe the closest. Right. And so I'm not surprised at all to hear that he was an apprentice.
1: Yeah and so that comes through and like you had also mentioned black swan and i don't necessarily think that it was directly inspired but you can't deny the similarities so um when aronofsky made that movie and you knowing that he is a huge fan of satoshi Kone and was influenced by his work previously you you kind of have to see like even if he says it's not in influenced by perfect blue it it is in a way because it's part of who he is at that point like for me perfect blue became who part of who I am as a film watcher. And I take that with me. And so I think that's kind of how it comes out in these other movies like that. And even other people's work, like you said, like fight club and other movies like that.
0: Yeah. And I, I mean, he bought the rights to the yeah. movie in order yeah. to use that scene. So, um, I'll definitely mention some parallels, but I do want to stress, I actually really do like black Swan. Oh, I love uh, it. yeah. I loved it. I saw it in theaters. I own it. So, I'm definitely not an Aronofsky hater. I would put him probably in my top five. Um, but it, it's sort of validating. I think the reason why I bring it up so much is because it, it kind of validates me a little bit because I've tried to push this movie onto people, and I'm like, no, <laughs> right. look, 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 look! All the other things that you like, they're like this. Like, yeah, come come back to uh, maybe not necessarily the source material, but somebody that inspired them. But right, maybe that's just like an old person thing to do. I don't know. <laughs>
1: you know? We're we're aging ourselves a lot on this show, but yeah, yeah. yeah I'm, I'm like I said, I'm the same way with uh, a lot of it because. You have to because I don't think people that may probably listen to the show and you and myself, of course, we we know who made these films and we know who worked on them and, and kind of where this stuff come from. But general audiences don't necessarily. And you kind of have to show them like, OK, you like these movies. This is the guy that made these. He watched this. And this is what came from that. And you kind of have to approach it that way, I guess. And sometimes it still won't work, and you'll still have to, they'll still hold on to that DVD for two weeks be- unwatched before they return it. But.
0: <laughs> I've done that to other people too, so I don't. Yeah. <laughs> <that>. <laughs> um, there's just some some things that don't stick. But uh, yeah. I, I do think uh, I will mention some parallels as we go through the plot. I mean, I think mm-hmm. the big, uh, with this with Black Swan, just sort of as a reference, yeah. I know like the characters, even their names, uh, Mima and Nina. pretty similar you know I think in Black Swan Nina is kind of almost like Nina sort of playing off the little girl innocence thing which Mm -hmm. is in this movie as Uh. well Um, so there's there's kind of a lot of parallels and uh, I think it'll be interesting to kind of talk through them and then that may further convince our viewers (laughs) (laughs) or listeners Um, but how do you want to start this off do you want to kind of climb through the plot or did you want to talk about your favorite scenes
1: uh, we can just, I can think maybe just going forward through the plot, I think that'll just naturally lead to it. If we can go on a few tangents here and there when we get to some of the favorite ones, I think. I,
0: I agree. I think some movies, the you know, doing favorite scenes is easier. But with this one, it's just kind of, it's already disorienting. So I think yeah. <laughs> jumping around too much will be confusing. Yeah. Um. So I'll, I'll just kind of start off a little bit. We talked about the J-Pop Idol Phenomenon, um, I think Japan was ahead of us in this whole fandom thing, right? Yeah. I feel like yeah. fandoms are so crazy now of everything. when you Even when you say the word fandom, it sort of has a connotation to it that it didn't yeah. used to. So think about that, but in terms of specifically pop idols. So she's part of a pop idol group called Cham, and uh, she's about to leave this group. She sings her last song in the opening scene and she's gonna become an actress mm-hmm. um but uh she has a they set up that she has a stalker that sort of tries to defend her right yeah because i they think they're um her fans are angry that she's leaving um and they yeah. express go, go ahead
1: because in that first scene they i really love how they set up that first scene because it really sets up everything for the rest of the movie and it It's done mostly linearly, although they do jump from the performance to Mima's real life and they go back and forth and the way they, like I was talking about the editing, the the way they edit it together, it's seamless. You see Mima move her head in one direction on stage and she finishes the movement while she's in the grocery store buying groceries and it continues that through that entire scene so it's already setting setting you up to accept this blending of the two sides of Mima. But yeah, the, so like you were talking about the idol culture and the fandoms, like for me, like when I was, when this came out and even before that, I didn't, I wasn't a part of fandoms. I was just a fan of something, you know, Mm -hmm. but at this point it's in America now too, it's more, or in the West, I should say, it's more, you become a part, when you are a fan of something, you're now a group, you, 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 yeah. And that seems kind of weird to me. So, and, but in Japan, you're right, they did, it's always, I wouldn't say always, but for a long time, it's kind of been that you do group together around this thing, and like I had said, I've seen some of it firsthand, the fans, I would say the more extreme fans of idols, they are part of the fandom, and they are extremely devoted to particular groups, and often specific members of those groups. And when you go to one of these idol shows, even these small ones that are just at festivals for something completely different, and it's a minor idol group you've never heard about, they have this small group of fans that are super passionate and they're doing all these moves and they're calling back to the stage as the idols are dancing. So, what they show in this opening scene in Perfect Blue isn't far off from reality. You do have these people that are so obsessed because you see uh, the character, uh, Mr. Me Mania, is his name. He's a. Uh, I think he's a security guard at the event. Mm. And one of my favorite shots in the movie is when he's kneeling down, looking up at the stage and he has literally has Nina in the, or Mima in the palm of his hand. He's looking like, (laughs) yeah, it's like looking up at her as she's dancing. And there's that really long shot of her just dancing in his hand. I love that shot.
0: Yes. I I think, you know, every time you watch a movie, you sort of relive it. So I watched this uh, a couple days ago and that mm-hmm. scene, it really it sticks with me as, like, I think one of just, like, the really good visual moments, like you're seeing yeah, in the film. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I had a question about, since you kind of attended some of these things, and something that I, I think I didn't notice when I was younger because I didn't know as much about J-Pop. Again, not an mm-hmm. expert, just casual viewer. But yeah. um, I noticed that there weren't any women in the audience (laughs) yeah that's a huge difference between over there and over here like let's say you went to a taylor swift concert i mean Mm -hmm. probably be mostly women you know even even some of the sexier more salacious like uh, acts would have a lot of female fans but it, it really seems like something like this is aimed specifically at like straight male audience
1: it is like the because i had gone to like i said some They were at festivals. They were just on the street at times, um, big music events. There would always be idol groups there. And always there would be maybe a few young girls there, but they would be kind of on the outskirts of this. The majority of the group, everyone up at the stage and everyone dancing and calling back to the stage were male. And they were probably, I would say, mid to late teens to early thirties. And that's, that's the demographic. That's, that's who they're marketing towards. And that's one of the reasons why some of the, uh, companies that handle these idol groups are so protective of the girls, one to protect them from some of that, to keep some distance, but also to market them towards these guys as young and kind of naive and innocent and things like that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just interesting because I think the first time I watched this movie and maybe somebody that isn't familiar with that culture would watch this and not pick up on that. You know, that's yeah. a big part of this movie. And I think one thing, um, that if you compare this, uh, a little bit back to black Swan, there's sort of a parallel there with, uh, Natalie Portman's character. She's very like childlike and innocent and mm-hmm. sheltered because she is so dedicated to ballet Right. But I think, like, this sort of, in in this instance, it's not that it makes more sense, but it's more clear because you know exactly what that culture is like. I, we don't really right. have that over here as much anymore, yeah. you know.
1: Right, so, yeah, because girl groups in the United States, it would be... Predominantly young girls or teen to young girls, I would say at the shows. I haven't, I have not, I don't have experience in that, but
3: um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't really either. I think yeah, <laughs>
1: but yeah, but,
0: it's definitely marketed towards girls, and obviously yeah. um, they're very attractive and they're young. Right, uh, but it's not, it's not like they're honing in on the the male demographic so much. Right,
1: and yeah, the Japanese idol market definitely hundred percent is.
0: Yeah. And I mean, you know the, it's kind of the same with the with the guy groups like I noticed yeah, you know, I only really see girls on my Facebook post about the boy groups either, yeah, it's so the it, same yeah yeah, it's kind of like um they they want to stay available and single for their fans kind of thing mm-hmm.
1: yeah. yeah, exactly. and it leads to some dark stories that have happened even up to the last this past year, there's been some incidents between fans and and idols so it's it's nothing new, and it, it's nothing that's really changed over the years.
0: Hmm, that's really interesting, yeah. Um, so kind of leading into another part of the story that I think is so interesting now, um, Mima is kind of, I think this is hard for people to even imagine now, but <laughs> she mm. was kind of technology, she wasn't tech savvy. Right. And I remember her, uh, her manager, Rumi, Mm-hmm. Uh, helps her set up a computer and even teaches her how to use it, which seems funny now. It does, yeah. She would not have a computer, and specifically that a young person would struggle to use one. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, once Mima gets on the net, she finds a, a blog called Mima's Room,
2: mm-hmm. and
0: she thinks it's really fun. At first she's kind of like, oh, people are you know really invested in me, they're paying a lot of attention to me. But yeah. then the more she reads the diary it's too close to her real life and it starts to actually scare her.
1: Right.
2: Because
1: it's, go ahead. Because it's mentioning things like we talked about the, the uh, interweaving of the show and her grocery shopping and Mima's room. There's a blog entry talking about her grocery shopping and her fish and how she gets off a train. So it gets progressively and quickly uh, deeper into her personal life and starts to unnerve her. Obviously.
0: Yeah, and I think what's interesting is when this first came out I mean there were blogs, but mm. this seems like science fiction almost, I think, at this yeah. point. You know, it's yeah. it's it's a horrifying thought and it's probably even scarier than. Now I don't wanna say it's normalized, but yeah. it reminded me a lot of like and it's not exactly the same, but when uh when celebrities first got Twitter, I remember you would see all these famous people on Twitter interacting with their fans and it was like a safe way to sort of at a distance communicate with them but then it would turn ugly so fast I mean you would hear things from your fans that you didn't want to hear or um, you know they talk about the paparazzi like taking pictures of you that you don't want to be taken and being shared online that you don't want or hackers and all that stuff is so such a big part of our culture now but I think at this point it wasn't yet so this was kind of not necessarily predicting it, but I mean, this is where things kind of started to go, you know?
1: Absolutely. I think Satoshi Kon was definitely on the front end of that. And like I said, not predicting, but being aware that this is, it can be an intrusion. Like, one of, I think, to me, one of the strongest things in horror sometimes can be, like, the use of technology to invade. Uh, someone else's life and Mm -hmm. you can go back to like when a stranger calls it was the telephone they kept getting phone calls and uh, this is just like a modern example of that the internet it's allowing these people into your private space and you don't have any control over it it's taking Mm -hmm. control of your own life away from you and in this instance for Mima it's actually taking away more of her life it's like is this person real it becomes that to where when she starts to lose herself she's not sure if the, if the Mima's room, her the website is real or if it's herself, and she's kind of following that as an example at times.
0: Yeah, I feel like that probably, like, not that that happens, yeah. but that um, celebrities, they have to project this image.
1: Right. And
0: it's, it's way, it's even more relevant now because they have, you know, Instagram and every picture they look perfect. And look at what yeah. I'm doing and look how interesting it is. It's not who you really are. It's just you're putting your best face out there. Right. Um, And this is kind of like a dark side of that. Well, couldn't anybody do that? Couldn't anybody make an Instagram account and say they're you? You know?
1: Exactly. If If it's my face or if I'm putting this face out there that isn't me, what's to stop other people from doing the same? Especially if they have all these pictures of me and there's all these interviews of me and all this stuff. They could piece that together and it becomes this projection of, how they perceive you and it's almost becomes a person unto itself
0: yeah and, the, and in a way controlling her and yeah i think control is kind of a theme in the movie because the for next sure. part of the movie where she's on the set of of double bind uh, mm-hmm. you know she's trying to go for a larger part and she's trying to get bigger she's kind of having to start all over which you know, she, she was this pop idol, and now she's having to kind of start over from scratch as an actress. She's coming right. in with a couple lines here and there, and I thought that was interesting because it, it sort of reminded me of this being also a coming-of-age tale because she sort of left one part of her life behind, True, and now yeah. she's entering the stage with other adults, and she's at the bottom again, you know? Right. And so I kind of liked how that sort of played on two different levels.
1: I hadn't actually thought about it that way as like a coming of age, but you're right, yeah. Well,
0: I, yeah, I, I kind of felt that it was because I, I've noticed, you know, even over here with, um, with Pop Stars... They, they go through this weird transition almost every time of like, you know, they start being really innocent and they're cute and everybody loves them. Then they have to go through this like silly bad girl phase. You know what I right. mean? We're like, yeah. Oh, they're 18 now. Like, look out. Yeah. And it's like that, that part is like ramped up. Like most yeah. recently, um, what's her name? Miley Cyrus went through this. Right. And, and I predicted, I was like, I bet you in a couple years, she'll go right back to how she was before. And that's exactly yeah. what happens. And I, I feel that yeah. we, push that we're like okay now you've grown up and you have to really push the envelope and it yeah. sort of takes these women in that industry and guys too but maybe on a smaller level they have to go through this sort of growing up process to figure out well what do i want and that's kind of how this movie i mean we'll talk about but that's where it ends up of her yeah taking back that control because in even in the acting thing, it's not actually her choice. You mentioned that earlier. Right. They were basically like, you're kind of too old to be a pop star. So, you
1: gotta yeah. start acting, you know. Yeah, and they were trying to... Because there was something about... The, it was the business side of it that was trying to push it. Because it was like, pop idols, music, they don't make much on record sales and things like that. But if she's a movie star, then then that's that can take us to the next level. So, it was the the adults in that situation were pushing her into this next phase of her life that she wasn't necessarily ready to go to. Cause she mentions in the, one of the opening scenes or her mother mentions when she gets a call from her mother and she's like, well, you, you went to Tokyo to sing, like you've always wanted to sing and that's what you wanted to do. And Mima kind of pushes it aside, brushes it aside. She doesn't necessarily tackle it head on, but she's like, mother, this is how it works in the city. This is how it works. When you're an idol, you move on to this next thing. And I think that's a lot of, when we see that acquiescence of her break down later on, because she's just, she's just parroting what her manager has said. Mm -hmm. And when we see that start to break down, that's when the movie itself starts to break down too. But I think I'm getting a little ahead right now.
0: (laughs) Oh no, you're fine. Uh, I I agree. I also think, uh, you know, it sort of foreshadowing, but uh, Rumi also steps in and she's sort of her inner voice in a way, like saying, no, you know, she, she wanted to be a pop singer. That's what she's here for. Yeah. Um, she doesn't want to do this. She doesn't want to do that. And then Mima feels obligated to pipe up and say, no, I, I do want to do it. But right. they, they're definitely setting a tone of, I mean, she doesn't know what she wants. Right. She knows that one chapter of her life is ending probably before she wants it to, but mm-hmm. she doesn't know where she's supposed to go next. She's only being told where to go next and so exactly. like you said when she tells her mom it's kind of like she's telling her mom confidently this is how it is but you sort of get the the vibe i mean because she said she went to tokyo that she's kind of sheltered and so she's yeah. just she doesn't have a frame of reference she doesn't have anybody there with her to lean on or ask questions so she's just having to trust her manager and uh, right. her i guess uh representation with yeah. like, her future
1: yeah because even in the opening scene when they're in the doing that final performance and mima's trying to say that she's leaving the group she's leaving cham she can't say it and one of her one of her partners on the dance or sorry one of her partners has to speak up for her and say mima is graduating from cham and then mima can start to speak she can't even speak the words initially
0: mm-hmm. everybody s- sort of speaks for her or exactly um you know the the blog predicts her life or, you know, she's literally reading from a script. Like yeah. she, she starts out as a character, not having a uh, clear direction, clear motivation, a clear voice. And then by the end of it, she's uh, totally different. I was reading, I, I didn't know this was based on a novel. Um, so I, I thought yeah. that was interesting.
1: I didn't know it until fairly recently and I haven't read it yet, but I did find out there was also like a TV show and a, another, uh, there was a live action movie based on it.
0: Yeah, I was seeing that too. I yeah. thought it was interesting. The novel was called "Perfect Blue," Metamorphosis. Which yeah, perfect. I'm so perfect glad, metamorphosis. Yeah, I'm so glad this wasn't called that because it, yeah. it gives away everything that's going right. to happen, literally. But, um, but, but yeah. So, um, yeah, just just a, a random thought that popped in my head. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah. So she, uh, so this is the part. Okay, so it leads into unless you had something else to kind of throw in before, but I was going to get to the, the, I guess maybe the roughest part of this movie. Uh,
1: no, I think, I think the only other thing is, uh, the, like the letter bomb and the, like the things that she starts getting.
0: Yes. Okay. So, and, and again, I think this is sort of not mirroring today, but I don't know. I feel like, you know, I guess I don't have a great frame of reference for, I was, I was pretty young when this came out, but the whole Mm -hmm. letter bomb thing it just seems a lot scarier now. Like yeah. more possible. You know, I don't know. Right. Did you notice in this movie there there's one part in the movie and I'm I'm gonna mention it now because of the letter bomb thing, um, where they mention somebody's name being Jody. Like the yeah. reference Jody <laughs> and I was like, yeah. Well, that's a total taxi driver reference. It is, yeah. It's... The her
1: manager when she agrees to do I think it's the scene we're about to get to. Oh,
0: yes, yes, you're right. Okay.
1: Yeah. He's
0: like, Jody did it.
1: Jody, what's her name? Yeah, I've only yeah. ever watched this in Japanese, um, so I'm not sure how it's done in the English dub, but yeah, you can hear him say, like, Jody something. He doesn't say the full name, but, like, she did this too. This is common for actresses to do stuff like this. Like, that yeah. was the...
0: And, and and uh i guess the letter bomb scene I, well jody was in uh the little girl that lived down the lane i think that's what he was referencing and when he said mm. that yeah but, but this movie sort of also reminded me a little bit of taxi driver just with the stalker element to it yeah so i kind of like i guess i picked up on that comment on a couple levels in english yeah. he, he doesn't say foster i don't think they were able to do that but
1: no i don't think he he didn't you heard it i you can hear him say jody in uh japanese but he doesn't say foster yeah
0: uh well so this this letter bomb scene so that it's the manager that gets it right or which yeah yeah so he um is giving a a more established actress a girl that's a little bit older than mima and she's sort of idolizing and sort of looking to as like her inspiration Mm. um in the direction she's going to go with acting gets a lot of fan mail Mm. and when the manager's giving her the fan mail he sees one letter that's not for her and maybe this goes back to the whole controlling you know the fan relationship but he opens a letter that was meant for mima right yeah so that, that was supposed to be targeting her but it targets him instead
1: yeah and it's interesting because to me like at the moment it makes sense and it's it's uh, frightening because mima had the letter in her hand before she was called to the set and she had to go on and so she handed the letter to her manager and he's the one that opens it while she's getting ready for her one line in the tv show and so to me in the moment it was like she could have had that mima could have had that explode in her hands but as you find out later on to me i think that the person who sent this letter knew that Mima probably wouldn't open it and that he would, one of her managers would be the one to open it. And so that's why, because there's no threat to Mima physically, at least initially. It's not until later in the movie that that it happens.
0: Yeah, I think all you know at this point when, when that letter goes off is that we do know her fan base isn't super happy with her. Yeah. We know that she has a stalker. And we know that she has that website, right? So it, it sets off alarm bells. But you're right; in the moment, it's not really clear who it's directed at. And I guess maybe knowing the culture, he would be the one that would open it. Yeah. And it's also kind of, I don't know, like voyeuristic to me to open somebody yeah. else's mail. You know. It is, yeah. I mean, it's it's an invasion of privacy, but um, totally. Mm. But yeah, so so that's that kind of. I think that's when this movie st- sort of starts to go in a different direction uh from being you know it's all focused on her they've given you a couple hints and then it starts going into like a horror direction
1: yeah for yeah. sure it, be- it becomes so one of the things that i think about this movie you talked about like influences and things and to me i don't think it's necessarily influenced by this but from this point on in the movie to me it feels like uh it's an italian like subgenre of horror which is called giallo which is the italian word for yellow and it's these it's like a pre slasher slasher movie where it usually deals with obsession and there's a killer that you never see their face. And it's kind of a murder mystery, but it's a little bit more violent. And that's kind of to me, if anyone out there listening is familiar with Jallos uh, and directors like Dario Argento and Mario Bava and things like that. That's what it feels like to me from this point, because it's about it does start to become this thing about obsession and stalking and violent murders a certain point.
0: Yeah, definitely. And what's really interesting and refreshing about this particular movie is I think it, it pays homage to those things, but mm-hmm. then it, it deviates from yeah. the typical outcome. I mean, it's like, I think that's kind of another thing that I liked about this movie is I'd seen a couple slasher films. I definitely mm-hmm. was not as well versed as you are because... Uh, I kind of grew up in an environment where we didn't really watch horror, so I just knew like sort of the surface ones, Mm -hmm. but uh, there were several parts in this movie that were surprising because it's not what would typically happen in that situation, right? which I think makes it like even more exciting and even more, not disorienting, but like, uh, yeah, just I guess surprising is you don't know what's going to happen next at all. Exactly, yeah. Uh, less predictable, I think is what I meant to say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, okay, so, so the letter thing happens, and then uh, she expresses concern to her manager, right? She tells, or to to Rumi, I'm to sorry. Rumi, yeah. And Rumi is really dismissive of the letter thing, which I think is sort of supposed to be a clue, right? I that, it is, yeah. and.
1: It wasn't until, I, I didn't catch up on this for a long time, really, until I knew what was happening in the movie and how it ended, and then I started to look at these character moments, and yeah, I think it really is supposed to be a tell, like, something, there's something a little off, that she's so dismissive of this letter bomb, that she could very well have uh, been the one to to get, because she's one of Mima's managers as well, and I'm assuming she probably opens Mima's male at points too because she is she's more a part of mima's life than the male manager is and to me uh, we talked about isolation earlier too like mima has isolated herself in tokyo she's away from her family her family it sounds like her family although we're not certain it sounds like they're somewhere else they're in a different city they're far away Because, like, in Japan, when you want to make it in the movie business or in the idol business or whatever, there's very few places you go. And Tokyo was one of those places you go. So you get these people from these small towns. And to me, Rumi kind of felt like that motherly figure in a way. Mm -hmm. But for her to be so dismissive of this thing that happened that was very traumatic to Mima and, of course, to the male manager as well, it's, yeah, it's a little disconcerting.
0: Yeah, she, she says, don't worry about it. He's fine. It's yeah. like, what? A letter exploded in his face. Yeah. I feel like he's not fine. And <laughs> right. Then, and then she's really dismissive about the website. Oh, don't look at it anymore. Yeah. It's like, yeah. hello. But right. I, I agree with you about her family because in the in the English version, they mm. have like a country Western accent. Which oh, okay. Which if... You watch a lot of anime, I feel like it's code for they're from Osaka or something, right? Yeah, like the or, yeah <laughs> somewhere, the,
1: the Inaka, the countryside, yeah.
0: Yeah, so I, I, I do agree that that was definitely um, implied. And so I, yeah. I think they have to isolate her also because if she had people in her life, um, just like the audience probably is, they would be asking questions.
1: For like, sure, yeah. I think that's, that's definitely a necessity for this movie, but it's also, it's not uncommon in Mm -hmm. Tokyo with millions and millions of people but people can be isolated easily even when you're stacked up on top of each other in these apartment buildings and there's people around you all the time but people tend to stay to themselves and if you want to isolate yourself you can very very easily Mm
0: -hmm. and especially her being so young it's yeah you know she she raises questions and concerns but they're they're always dismissed so she kind of right just trust whoever is answering her.
1: Yeah, she trusts implicitly, which isn't such a good thing as we find out.
0: Yeah, so um, I guess that leads into the next part where her male manager and female manager are arguing about whether or not Mima should take a scene. Because I think she reads like a script and her eyes get yeah. big. Yeah. And then she's trying to process if she's going to do it or not while her representation like argues about it. Mm-hmm. Which I saw this scene really differently now that I'm older. Because when I saw it, I think I had a perception of, like, oh, it's like Hollywood and you have yeah. to do what they say. Like, I think, you know, <laughs> right. they're sort of banking on young girls doing that. But, right. But now that I could sort of more relate, not entirely as I'll explain, but I <laughs> can mm. sort of relate a little more to Rumi. That, you know, she's kind of the, the motherly figure, like you said, and also just more experienced. She's like, right. she doesn't have to do this. Like, this isn't yeah. something that she has to do. Right. And Mima's just so unsure, and when the manager puts so much pressure on her, she just caves, and she's like, okay, I'm going to do it. Yeah. I, I'm going to be an actress, and just like being the pop star, I'm going to go 100%. Um, and going 100% doesn't mean doing what she desires. It means doing whatever is required of the role
1: right exactly yeah i think that's also part of the japanese culture which isn't as much today i think it's getting a little bit away from that but that part of the sacrifices to the self for the good of the group and for mima it's the company and the rest of the people she saw these two people that she's probably closest to at this point arguing over her and about their business and so if she's if she does it she ends the argument and we can they can all go forward and that's i think it's part of part of who she is as a japanese a young japanese girl she mm-hmm. just kind of acquiesces to the group even if it hurts her in the process
0: yeah she see like you said she sees it as a sacrifice and then yeah. It's so upsetting to Rumi, which this is another, I think, foreshadowing that I didn't see the first time I saw this. Mm. But Rumi gets so upset, she leaves a room in tears.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, yeah, go ahead.
1: Oh, uh, it's just, yeah, she can't hold it together. There's moments. It's interesting, like, I really focused on Rumi this last time I watched it. And there's multiple times where she is yawning she's tired all the time she's and you can read that in a few different ways but knowing how the movie ends you can see like there's she's preoccupied with something she's doing something she's always doing something and so that's why she's so tired and she can often keep it together but there are moments that Rumi can't keep it together and it's very she always she kind of has to get away because there's one scene when she's talking later in the movie to the mail manager and he says something after Mima had done something that she didn't approve of, but Rumi just smiles. But then there are those other times where Rumi just, she can't hold it together. And that's just planting those seeds for what comes later on.
0: Mm, I didn't notice the tire thing. You're so right. Um, that also kind of reminds me of Fight Club a little bit. Yeah. When they're sort of hinting that Tyler Durden has a second life when he's he asleep. Exactly. he Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, and, and I didn't notice this either, but I don't know if it's said in the movie, so I don't know if this is just, like, Wikipedia, but, uh, they suggested that Rumi used to be an idol herself. Is, are there any hints of that in the movie?
1: I think there are, because I got that impression. Yeah. But I don't, I don't know if they explicitly stated that. I think, I think it's more of either she used to be an idol or she wanted to be an idol
3: mm-hmm.
1: and i think part of uh, definitely part of the culture when you reach a certain age like we had said you don't you're not as marketable anymore in that position so you move on to something else and i think i think it can be read both ways i think either and it still works like either she was an idol and she just couldn't let go, therefore she stayed in the business to manage other girls and maybe try to protect them, maybe try to live vicariously through them, mm-hmm. would, and you can argue either way, or maybe she never could be an idol, therefore she gravitated towards the business anyway.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah I definitely, I, I, I know I got the vibe that she was living vicariously through Mima at yeah. certain points, uh, yeah. It's it's implied in how... Dramatic, she is when whenever Mima makes a decision she doesn't agree with, right? Um, but but yeah, I wasn't sure if it's said expressly in the film. I think I think it's better that it isn't, like, just makes yeah. it more open ended. But uh, I feel like I'm stalling because uh, this <laughs> part is so crazy. Yeah. There's a part of me that wants to rip it off like a band aid, and another part of me that wants to get to it, but uh, um, right? So, so this scene, uh, so just to kind of like let our audience know Mima as we said earlier she's in a show called Double Bind which is basically I guess kind of like a CSI type show or maybe like NYPD Blue something like that where there is a um um and we don't know much about the plot yet I don't think but what we do know is that Mima's character um her representation has pushed that she have more meaty scenes, more lines, and of course, this creepy writer—he's yep. like, "Oh, I know what to do to give this girl <laughs> some more screen time." And I right. think the—you know—he's—he's uh, he's kind of using it as an excuse to push the envelope yeah. and go for shock value, and you know,
1: absolutely. Yeah. I
0: think you know more than more than to be creepy towards her. I think he wants to get more attention, and this is one way to do that. Um, yep. Sort of have a girl go from. Uh, shy girl next door to this dramatic, um, like, sexual scene. Right. But um, uh, basically, Mima's character uh, is, I I guess, a a dancer at a strip club, Mm -hmm. and um, she's uh, assaulted while she's dancing. Yeah. Um, And as we were talking about earlier, it's one of those things where I mean, I, I've seen things like this in movies, but I do think this scene is more disturbing than it normally is, mm-hmm. just because of her reactions and because of uh, Rumi's reaction. Like when she's crying watching it, yeah. her manager looking really uncomfortable, wondering if he made the right decision, right? And then also Mima's reaction to it. Um, and and I think I think Satoshi Kon did a really good job at this scene because they do a lot of cuts
3: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> that sort of play as kind of comedic, but also to give the audience just like a break, you know,
2: yeah, where yeah. they ask
0: her if she's okay. And I, I really felt like he did a good job of having this really traumatic scene without having to actually have the character be raped for real, you know, like it right. could have gone that way. And then he chose not to, which I, I kind of liked about it.
1: <laughs> yeah. And I think it, it fits and it makes more sense this way because at this point we already see Mima not being sure exactly of what's real and what isn't when and it's done a lot through the editing it's not explicit it's done through how scenes are connected and how things reappear and lines reappear. So in the show, Double Bind, the first line, the only line that she has initially is who are you? I think in the English one, it's like, excuse me, who are you? Mm -hmm. And that's on Mima's room. So it, there's a audio clip of that line as she says it. And we actually first hear that line on the Mima's room site and it's repeated to Mima. And so we don't hear Mima say it because she's interrupted when the letter bomb goes off. We don't hear Mima say it until a little bit later. And so at this point, we're already set up to see how Mima may not be acting when she's supposed to be acting. She might actually be inhabiting these roles. And so when this scene comes up, when the uh, the rape scene in the uh, strip club comes up, to me, Mima's not acting when she when she. Is performing this scene to me, it feels like she actually is getting raped because she's not able to separate reality from the acting at this point. Yeah, and so I think the way you said how they do the cuts, the director in the m- movie on set in the movie, it's kind of hard to describe some of these because there are so many times when the movie that they're shooting or the TV show that they're shooting becomes the movie that we're watching but then we pull back and see that it's just the tv show within the movie and so it's that kind of uh, filmmaking and editing and shot placement to make the viewer unaware of when it's real and when it's not like when a little bit earlier the uh the man that approaches mima on the street asking her if she wants to be a model every time i watch that i'm like He's he's approaching Mima on the street asking her if she wants to be a model, but then they pull back and it's actually part of the TV show, and then they actually pull out of the video screen and we see people talking about it, and then they go back to another scene. So it's all that confusion. So when the director calls set when the director calls cut on the set of the rape scene, if you notice, like each time he says action again, Mima's screams gets a little bit louder and a little bit more emphatic and a little it's just it pushes it a little bit more and more. And then that scene ends with she's looking upside down at the actors on the set cheering. And that goes into a shot of the crowd from the beginning of the people cheering for her when she's on stage. And so it's just the way that it's done. It's like, to me, she's not acting. It's all this actually happened to her in her head.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that um, it also does a good job on another level of. How traumatic that could be, even if it is just acting. Yeah. And how you know she's having to give up so much uh, of what she doesn't want to, right? uh, In order to further her acting career, it's like, you know, that's that's pretty upsetting. And uh, I think they did a good job of showing that because Mm -hmm. I, I feel like. I don't know it's like a lot of times we're like oh she did you know a, a sexy scene and we, we don't think about what that might be like for the actress to make that decision go through right. with it and be unhappy with it um and so i, I kind of liked that part too um mm-hmm. but yeah i think i think it's really amazing uh the way that it's shot like you said sort of switching back and forth and uh, that part where she asked or she's asked you know do you want to be a model same mm-hmm. here. I I thought it, I always think it's part of the movie, and then suddenly it's not. But I think they are planning that idea in your mind. If what if this is all just happening to her? Right. Um, what's happening on screen? And I, I've noticed I've seen other I guess films that use this sort of trope of like oh you know we're shooting a movie, but is it really happening? You know what's right. going on? And a lot of times it doesn't play as well as this does. Maybe because it's so disorienting. Yeah, it's just more effective, you know, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And it's Um.
1: it's because to me, it's disorienting, but it's seamless at the same time. Mm -hmm. Like I really watched the edits in these last few times I've watched it as well. And it's it's seamless how it just flows like one scene goes into the next. There's never like there's very rarely like a hard cut. And when there is, it's for a definite reason. It's always like like I was saying, it's cut on the movement to connect the scenes or we see them tv show within the movie that pulls out from the tv screen to people talking and even going back to memories like when uh when mima remembers celebrating with cham about their first single it's it's all part of the flow of the movie so it's all happening at the same time in my head
0: Mm -hmm. and um also right after the scene i think uh so she's kind of done this thing that she didn't want to do, mm. and it is debatably a good decision. A couple things happen. Number one, uh, her her group starts to climb in the charts, actually, when she leaves, yeah. which is upsetting for her. Right. Because she she She's, you know, going with this idea of, like, I'm going on to bigger and better things. Mm-hmm. And so there's a part of her that's like, well, maybe I should have stayed because now, yeah. you know... And she's being happy for them, but again, it's like she's playing a role. She, ha- she can never really express how she actually feels she's like i'm right. so happy for you this is great that never happened when i was in the group but yay. yeah it's like i mean she slips that in there like yeah i don't know i feel like it's intentional and then uh there's also i really love all the scenes with those three guys that you see in the first uh concert mm-hmm.
1: the fans yeah the
0: fans because they're kind of like i think nowadays maybe you would just see it online or you know on someone's right Facebook post or something, but yeah. they sort of represent like uh, all of, all of the audience. Um, yeah. And they, sure. they sound to me even kind of like film bloggers, almost they're like standing they in do. line <laughs> and going like, Oh, did you see what she was in? She only had a couple lines and, Oh, do you see what yeah. she did next? And, you know, it's kind of um, giving us a window into that and also uh, connecting us back to the stalker as well.
1: Yeah. Because, me mania, the stalker guy, is pretty much always there when they're wherever they are. Mm-hmm. He's always around. And I think that's a little bit for convenience, but it makes sense because they all, even though these three guys are kind of talking about, oh, she moved on. she's not as good as she used to be. They're still always where she is, you know, mm-hmm. and me mania is obviously always where she is because he's stalking her. but it it gives kind of both sides of kind of that fandom that we were talking about earlier the more still very judgmental and kind of taking what she does and what she presents as their own and saying, Oh, this like passing judgment on her because of the limited amount of things that she puts out there for them to see. And then me mania is just takes it that 10 steps too far.
0: Right. Exactly. Um, he, so I think the next scene that's big, 2 is the one with the photo shoot right? Is that right after yeah. this? Yeah. Yeah,
1: because the the narrative starts to break down after the rape scene. It it starts to the timeline starts to get confusing in the way that we talked about how we're not sure what's a dream and what's not because scenes repeat at this mm-hmm. point. And yeah, this is that's part of it.
0: Mm-hmm. And and I will say too normally I I'm not a huge fan of showing stuff like that. (laughs) Honestly, Mm. like I think everybody kind of has their sensitive topics and I don't like when it's, I guess you could say like exploitative. Um, Uh I I want, if it is used to fit what's actually happening and for it to have an impact and for, if you're showing something disturbing, I I think it should be disturbing. Right. Right. So um, I think this fulfills that. And then also this uh, photo shoot that she does, Mm -hmm. um, it starts to get kind of, sexual and so mima gets so upset at one point that she actually goes in the bathroom
2: mm-hmm. and
0: her her uh, male manager is like going come on everyone's here everyone's waiting you have to do this
2: <laughs> yeah Which
0: again exactly. is like so you know if she were just like i think a little bit older or maybe more less naive yeah. she would be like oh you know what I, i'm gonna think about it i'm just gonna go home for today like <laughs> right but she she goes out there and she does it And then there's, like, this great scene later where she's in the bathtub. It's the scene that they use in Requiem Mm -hmm. um, where she's sort of screaming in the bathtub. Once again, she can't even scream in her room. She can't express to anybody that she's unhappy. She does it alone in that bathtub, and she calls him a bastard. And that's when more deaths in the movie start happening. That's where the – I think we kind of not forgot about the slasher aspect – we were just given a hint, and then it starts to really ramp up after this.
1: Yeah, because at that point, the first murder in this movie happens. We don't see anything about it. We just... It's... Uh, Mima goes into the elevator and sees the newspaper clipping stuck to the wall, and then Mimania staring at her and smiling. And that's the only thing... That's That's the entirety of the first murder. There's nothing. And then it gradually picks up to... We see more of the stalking and the aftermath of one of them. And then we see a full murder at one point. So it gradually ramps it up.
0: Yeah. Um, do you want to talk about, uh, the, the different murders? Cause I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's dark subject matter, but I think those are like yeah. really good scenes.
1: Yeah, they are the, because the first one that we really see a lot of, I believe is the writer, uh, Shibuya, I think his name is, mm-hmm. um, he's in a parking lot and then we start we hear the song that the last song that mima was a part of in cham that we heard at the beginning of the movie we hear it playing and we don't know where it's coming from but oh before that there's blood all or there's something red all over the wall with double double bind taped to this guy's parking spot he's like well that's Mm. weird but he doesn't seem too freaked out about it for some reason but then we hear the song start playing and I love this scene so much because Thank it's you. it's so good. It, it's so scary. Like it shows such restraint at the same time, though, because mm. he opens the elevator doors open and there's the the boom box in there that's just blasting it. it the song is distorted at this point when he opens it, which is not uh, it's very intentional. Like the music is it's it sounds weird and it's too loud and all the voices are distorted in it. And then it just cuts we see the elevator doors open again and the guy is dead and there's blood everywhere inside the elevator comes back to like a wide shot and the elevator door shuts and that's all we see it's so effective like even if you did that in a live action like that's one of the most memorable scenes for me i think
0: well i watched a video um and i guess i'd noticed this i noticed in this scene uh when you see the boom box the floor is red already yeah, yeah. so that's another kind of signal it's kind of disarming yeah. um but uh, there, there's a whole video that I saw that talks about the use of red in the movie and how it's mm-hmm. like a mood changer and sort of yeah. reality changer, and it reminded me a little bit of like The Shining and how the sh- in The Shining uh, Kubrick used red a lot in that movie. Yeah. So I think it's just you know psychologically. I mean, we obviously associate red with horror with blood, yeah. so it plays on that level. Also, I yeah. think right before he gets on the elevator, he sees me, Mania. Right.
1: Does he? Yeah,
0: I feel like... Yeah, he, I think so. He's like, you know, when you earlier were talking about a security guard, I guess that's how yeah. he gets access to a lot of these places. Yeah. He just, he works there. Right. He's following her around. But I think, like, they want to mislead you and think he's doing it. So at this mm. point, they show you him really quick, and he smiles. Right.
1: And, yeah, and that's the thing, because they do show him in these different places, but you get the sense that he might not actually be there. Because a lot of the times, it's from Mima's perspective. And mm-hmm. so in on the set of Double Bind, you see me mania in the crowd when she's looking at the the crew. He's there, but then it cuts back and he's not there. So was he there? It's right. hard to say.
0: And, and is he somebody who's truly stalking her? or Does he just represent the public at large that isn't right. happy with her? Yeah,
1: exactly. Um, but oh, go ahead. I just sorry, I just want to say real quick, talking about Red, that reminded me uh, one of the biggest things that i noticed lately i think in my watchings of this movie the scene the rape scene that we talked about uh, i just wanted to mention it real quick because the the color reminded me the outfit that she's wearing as a stripper is almost identical to the outfit that she's wearing when she's on stage with cham in the beginning of the movie yeah the only the only difference is where it was pink in the beginning it's red in this scene it's like a dark red on white so it's, it's I think, not only is that symbolic for the movie, but I also feel like that's another signal that this uh, writer, Shibuya, he is intentionally using Mima's pop idol image against her and is intentionally kind of making fun of her and trying to, like, use that image to sell his... TV show in like the most despicable way possible. He's like taking that image and completely destroying it and twisting it. But in the movie it works as well. And like you said, the red represents that change because that's when the, the narrative starts to shift.
0: And and like you said earlier, since the scenes are kind of sometimes out of order, like feel free to stop me if I'm jumping ahead or saying something out of order. But um, I think this is also around the time it actually might be right before this murder where Mm me, Mania me mommy me mania. <laughs> Sorry, it's not okay me mania, uh goes and buys all those magazines yeah he's nude in right like someone's looking at a, a, a nude picture of her and he like snatches all of them up yeah and you, profusely and buys
1: you them. can see that this is a big change for him as well up to this point we had even seen him i think we'd seen him in his room at this point and his room is its dark and claustrophobic, and there's pictures of Mima everywhere on the ceiling and everywhere else. Um, but he's always been kind of in control. He's always been smiling uh, throughout mm-hmm. the movie, but when he sees Mima nude in this magazine and freaks out, this is the first time we really see him upset, and that's definitely a change for him, and that has pretty dire consequences really quickly.
0: Mm-hmm. Is that also the scene where... Uh, the I guess he you find out he's communicating with the website Mima's uh-huh. room and yeah. he imagines that Mima's there with him and yeah. and that she's telling him like, hey this isn't who I am you know, I, I would never do something like this.
1: Yeah, that's part of it. There's there's a couple scenes because I think the first time we just see him we hear so Mima is reading the website, the words on the website in her own and in her head she's hearing it read in her own voice and that cuts to without stopping the dialogue of mima's voice it cuts to Mimania in his room mouthing the words in mima's voice on the audio track and we see him typing the words into it so we see at that point that he's the one that's actually running this but mm-hmm. how is he getting how is he getting this information and then the scene you talked about i think is a little bit later and we see him reading the emails from someone like you said saying this isn't me who is this imposter i wouldn't do those things and that's when we see mima at his back and his pictures on the wall actually speak as well
0: and that scene uh with the picture speaking reminds me a lot of black swan because it's yeah. literally a scene in that movie where her mother's obsessed with her and is painting her image over and over yeah and the the picture speak, which is like, right. I think like the scariest, scariest movie, yeah. movie to me. I was like, yeah. I literally almost went, ah, like <laughs> so creepy and, yeah. and so exciting. Um, but, but yeah, I, 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 think that adds a whole nother level though, when you talked about earlier, um, you know, this, this pressure that the idols are under to, to remain innocent and pure. Mm-hmm. And I think that might not translate as much to our, our audience, like how, I guess traumatic that is, that she threw off that reputation. Yeah. Um, I don't even think in most Japanese TV they would even have a scene like that anyway. Like, you know, the rape scene. Yeah. I don't think Um, so, because
1: I did watch some Japanese TV when I was over there. It's not that good. Like, the, (laughs) the fans in the movie were talking about how... I think one of the lines is, why do why do thrillers always made in Japan always turn out like this? Like it's not very good. And that's mm-hmm. kind of accurate as far as there's some good TV shows over there, but for the most part, they're pretty uh, by the numbers and inoffensive and kind of cheesy at the yeah. time. Yeah.
0: Um, and, and so, so yeah, so I think another reading of this, I guess watching it this time, mm. um, when Mimani is speaking for her, Mm-hmm. like that part really creeps me out now because I yeah. feel like he went from almost wanting to be her to wanting her right like th- it's not hundred percent clear to me yeah at least at it, that point in the movie like he's mouthing along with her like I don't know that seems almost like he's he's her you know
1: yeah i I think it does and I think it's I think it's intentionally kind of meshing those two that the two sides of wanting her and wanting to be her at the same time. I think he just wants to be so close to her that he wants to, he's kind of becomes part of her through the the persona and the, the splitting of his own brain. And I think it's interesting at this point, that's the first time when he, we see him mouthing the words in Mima's voice. That's the only, that's the first time we actually see him speak. We haven't heard his voice up to this point either.
0: Mm-hmm. It's like he doesn't have an identity aside exactly. from being obsessed with her Yeah, And also, I guess, uh, Jodie Foster, going back to that a while ago, I mean, she was in Uh. Silence of the Lambs, too, so that's another weird... I mean, I think maybe just Satoshi Kon sort of connecting to, I guess not scream queens necessarily, but Mm. uh, I guess uh, psychological thriller queen. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) he 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 does
1: have a trend of focusing on the female experience, Um, which I've seen a few directors have done that, which I think it's interesting. I think you can have an entire other podcast about just that, about like men trying to portray like the female experience in these things. Um, I couldn't speak to how accurate it is, but from what I've seen, and from my limited experience, I mean, I think it's it's definitely a powerful movie. I'm not sure how accurate it is, but I think it's interesting that that he does gravitate to that.
0: Yeah, I have to say, I I think it is pretty spot on. Um, yeah. uh, he captures like the fear and all, you know, the conflict she's having in her mind, trying to separate what she really wants through what everybody else wants, yeah. what they're projecting onto her and who she really is. Um, and I think paralleling that with a, a real actress that did do films like this, yeah. I think that's a, a pretty cool connection. And again, I might yeah. be reaching a little bit, but I just, I just, I don't know. It's like the more you watch it, the more little hidden Easter eggs you kind of see.
1: Yeah, I don't I don't think it's reaching because to me, Satoshi Kon knows exactly what he's doing. Mm-hmm. And like everything in that movie means something. And it's, it's all there for a reason. So he wouldn't have picked... That name out of a hat he 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 definitely did that to make that connection,
0: yeah, and those are some of I guess my favorite movies. Uh, you know, like I said earlier, I really like taxi driver, but mm-hmm. um Silence of the Lambs, you know, that does have a lead female character, yeah, um and it's from her perspective, and um I think you know it is a really strong movie. So I think that's a pretty cool uh, connection there, yeah. Uh, for sure. So I guess the next thing that happens is, is it the next death scene?
1: I think so. There's kind of in between, I believe, there's... See, I'm trying to think... It's hard to think back about this movie it because... Really it
0: really is hard. It's hard for it, me on every movie, to be honest with you. I just watched <laughs> this and I'll still have... It's a yeah, challenge.
1: <laughs> yeah. But there's there's the scene with Mima and her fellow actress where Mima's getting more scenes and they're out at the docks or whatever. And she she's giving her lines and she thinks she sees... Uh, Mimania in the crowd and it's raining and we see her starting to break down and then she goes out into the street and she looks like she's about to get hit by a truck but then she wakes up in her bed and then that whole sequence repeats again She go, we go back to the scene with Mima and her fellow actress it's not raining anymore but we see it, it had just finished raining and then she goes back again and she wakes up in her bed and it looks like the same day but is it or isn't it and there's never really an explanation for it, but there doesn't need to be. It's all about this is where I think a lot of people kind of check out on this mm-hmm. movie is this whole sequence, because it is confusing. We don't know if this is the next day. Is it the same day? Did this happen before this? I, like to me, some of it seems like it had to happen before some of these other scenes and some of them don't feel connected at all. But it's, it's done for a specific reason. And then it does lead up to uh, the next uh, death scene, I think.
0: I think all these uh, cut TV scenes, mm-hmm. and I had this thought watching um, that movie that I covered last week, Train Spotting, 2, mm-hmm. uh, with the use of, like, TV. Uh, it yeah. reminded me a little bit of Requiem. Um, yeah, definitely. You know, uh, just um, repeating the same lines over and over. In this movie, it's cut. And that's yeah. sort of like—I mean—it's literally a cut. It's literally our cue to shift our focus to something else. Yeah. Whether that be the next scene or is it just taking us out of that reality into another one? Right. I, I agree with you. I think that um, a lot of people may watch this part and li- and just assume like, oh, this is where this movie's just getting bananas and who yeah. knows what's going on. But if you really pay attention, you're given a lot of context clues. Yeah. Um. In in all these cuts, uh, the mm-hmm. the truck thing comes up again later. Uh, I I like the scene, I don't know if it connects to anything specifically, but I like the scene where she's feeling good about her lines, but then she hears a couple actors giggle, and she just kind of assumes it's about her, and it really hurts her feelings, I think that, like, when you were saying earlier, you're not sure how, like, real it is, I I Mm -hmm. really think as a girl, like, Definitely have had that experience, you know, so right. I mean, it, it's, it's her struggling with like growing up and owning it, you know, and, and yeah. sort of feeling on the same level as these people and always feeling like a child kind of, um, Yeah. but, but yeah, so, so this is pretty, you know, there's a lot of fast cuts and it's not all clear what it's leading up to, but it does lead up to the second murder i mm-hmm. um, and it happens I know it's kind of hard to follow along if you're listening but it, it happens pretty quickly after the uh nude scene or yeah. the 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 picture scene mm-hmm. and um also Mimania being upset about her picture being everywhere Right. Um so you know part of that whole thing happening and her having a breakdown ends with uh, that guy getting stabbed, but also ends with uh, another really great scene, the pizza scene. <laughs> yeah, which like, oh my gosh, I, I can't tell you. Like, I just watched this again, and mm-hmm. it legitimately freaks me out. Like the the boombox scene and this scene are like yeah. chilling, you know? They are, and, yeah. And they shouldn't be. Like, well, I, so so the person delivers the pizza, and the guy says it's the photographer.
1: Mm-hmm. And he
0: says something like oh, you're a funny pizza man or you're a weird pizza guy. I can't yeah. remember why he says that, but.
1: Well, I think because whoever this is, we don't see who this is at this point because they have a cap down over their head. And oh, the way right, it's right. the way the art is, the face is kind of blank. Like you can't see the face at this point And the body shape is pretty generic. And the pizza boy is, or girl is just standing there and he's not doing anything. And I think he drops the pizza as well.
0: Oh, yeah, and so he bends down to look at it. Yeah. And he's stabbed in the hand first, I think, or in the eye.
1: I think it's the eye first. It's the
0: eye, and, like, all this, of course, it's, like, anime, so, like, all this blood gushes out of his eye. Yeah. Then he's trying to, I think, reach for his phone. Is that when he gets stabbed with his hand? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then uh, I think they're sort of trying to make you think that it's Mimania at first, Mm -hmm. but then he starts stabbing him in the crotch, yeah. And uh, you know it's it's really gruesome, and that's when the hat comes off, and it's Mima mm-hmm. stabbing him repeatedly. And behind her is a picture of her.
1: Yeah, it, like <laughs> I think it's projected, isn't it? It's <laughs> yeah. like so the, the actual picture is projected across her face and the wall behind her.
0: And she's furious, and uh, as she's stabbing him, she's remembering that scene of uh, her being forced to take all those pictures yeah. of her naked. And w- this time when you see those pictures, they're way more explicit too.
1: Yeah. You oh, see, definitely. Yeah. The, you see the, when how you, far
0: he pushed it, you know? Yeah.
1: When you actually s- are watching the photo session, you don't really see anything uh, or very little. But mm-hmm. yeah, like you said, when, when it's the memory of it and it's more, you see a lot more. But after so after the photographer gets killed, that's when her manager is finally like, this may be a problem. We should probably get you to safety. And then that leads to kind of the final scene or not the final scene, but the the final act of the movie that starts, I think, with uh, revisiting the set of where the rape scene occurred. And that's right. Yeah. The big confrontation there. After the photographer gets killed, it's the final day of shooting on Double Bind. And at this point, uh, this is one of the the most telling scenes of the confusion of is this a TV show? What's real? What isn't? Because we cut to a scene with Mima. We don't know that she's necessarily giving a line because she actually says she's being um, questioned by her partner on the TV show Double Bind but the line that she gives says like she asked her okay who are you and mima says my name is mima and i am an actress like and so it, we're watching the final scene of the final episode of double bind but then when we watch this scene again on tape we see that that's not the line that mima actually gave she actually gave the character's name and she said not that she's an actress that she's a model so that's the uh, most yeah. telling scene of she's is unaware. Mima is unaware of the difference between reality and this movie set and everything else.
0: And they even go into further explanation of she's her sister. Yeah, that um, that killed her. Um, the model, right? And she's and so she's taken on that persona.
1: Yeah, and like I kind of think that the first time I watched this, I probably was starting to get a little frustrated because yeah. i was thinking that this was going to be the end of the movie and that the whole thing up to this point the whole mima story was just part of this movie that was being made thankfully they didn't end it there because that that would have been a typical like japanese thriller like yeah. just really cheesy kind of uh hackneyed ending yeah. but uh it's, so it's after that, after the rap, and people celebrate Mima at this point. She's actually become a big part of the show, and she's been, it's kind of a breakout role for her. But she's kind of, when they yell cut on that final scene, she just looks around. She's not sure what's happening. Like, she doesn't know that they're celebrating her for her role because she doesn't necessarily feel that it was a role. And that's when, in the back, um, we see her actress partner i forget keep forgetting her name she walks by her and she confuses her for the part she played on the show and then we see me mania walking towards her in that long hallway and he's wearing the same security guard outfit that we saw him at the beginning of the movie and when he was on the set earlier and like all these times throughout the movie so it's set up to this point everything up to this point in the movie is set up to make you think that he's just another delusion of hers but he's not this time
0: Right. And he attacks her. Yeah. And he acu- he tells her, he brings up that she's not the real Mima. This is yeah. the first time he speaks, right? I mean, we yeah, hear his voice.
1: this is the first time we hear his voice and it's it's like really it's kind of high pitched and it's not mm-hmm. something that I would have connected with the way his character looks, you know.
0: Not at all. Yeah, and uh, it's just really alarming and Yeah. Um, Basically, he kind of starts to recreate the rape scene.
1: Right, because they end up back on the set of that scene um, because he chases her, and that's where she ends up, and he starts to try to rape her.
0: Mm -hmm. And then this is, I I think, one of the parts of the movie where I feel like it really deviates from a slasher flick. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, usually the, the main actress uh, or scream queen whatever you want to call her Mm -hmm. doesn't really get like any sort of satisfying scene where she fights the attacker off right but it's super brutal when she hits him with that hammer yeah i mean it freaks me out like she hits him really hard and he has a moment of just utter confusion before uh really reacting to what happened yeah
1: yeah that's one thing about the violence, even talking about the stabbing in the eye of the photographer, there's when there, when there's one of those moments of extreme violence, which there are in this movie, there's that second or two of just pause, like Mm -hmm. before you see the result of it. And I think it makes it that much more powerful. There Mm -hmm. was, when he got stabbed in the eye, there was the pause and then the blood starts flowing. Uh, When Bimania gets the hammer to the side of the head stops everything stops on the screen there's nothing i don't think there's any sound
3: Mm
1: -mm. and then he starts to react and you see that he's not okay and he that's that stops the attack but mima obviously is not okay at this point either
0: yeah and i think it's also a shift i think from maybe this point on Mm -hmm. she stops being justice oriented and she starts reacting and being proactive
1: yeah um, she saw that it was real, and she saw that she could actually fight it. And so I think that is a, a change, and that's what leads I think to the the final scene, to how that goes down.
0: Mm-hmm. And she uh, she ends up in the hallway like disoriented, and Rumi finds her. Which again, like I think when you rewatch this a few times, you might see Rumi being right there as kind of good timing like she was right there mm. but she got there only after the attack happened I don't know yeah um, but then they go back to where the attack happened and nothing's there so right. once again as an audience member you're like N- okay no really what is going on here yeah you know? and um, it's almost not even important whether or not that happened because just how this all wraps up but um, right it's important for her care as a character to have that moment but whether or not it really happened You know, I don't, I don't know if that's important. Um, Yeah. Go ahead.
1: Well, I was saying, I think to me, I think it does give us uh, a realization that it did definitely happen. Like you said, it's not as important because at this point we know that a lot of what we're seeing is in Mima's head and the reality that we're a part of is her reality and not necessarily an objective reality so seeing her go through this even if it's just in her head it's still that breaking through it's that breakthrough moment for her whether Mm -hmm. it's real or not
0: um do you think that Rumi cleaned it up really fast like I just like every time I watch this I'm trying to decide if it happened or not I do your take okay
1: okay, I definitely do because after that then we go to uh, that's when Rumi says, I'll take you back to Mima's room when she's driving her. And I don't remember exactly when they do it. But at a certain point, we see a shot of uh, some location within the film studio and the oh, ma- that's
0: right.
3: yeah, that's the mail right. manager
1: is dead. And Mimania is dead, but hes it's not because of the hammer. His eye is like completely gone and there's blood all over his face. So something okay. happened after Mima left him.
0: Probably that he chose to get physical with her.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, but, yeah, uh, so, so yeah, she she says, let's go to Mima's room, but she's so tired and disoriented that she doesn't mm. really react to it. And you, as an audience member, I think you're trying to decide, did she really say that, or is that part of this reality thing again? You know? Right. Of her not really phasing in and out. Yeah. I think that's where, going back to what I was saying earlier, she wakes up in that room, mm. in her room, Yeah. But then uh, she sees the bloody clothes. So once again, you know, I think she kind of reconciled in her mind that maybe she didn't kill that guy with the hammer. But then she's back in this room and she sees the bloody clothes and it it terrifies her. But then Mm. she looks out the window. I think that's the giveaway. Right.
1: I think she sees the fish at one point and the fish are alive. And then she looks out the window and we've kind of gotten a sense of the geography of Mima's apartment. Mm-hmm. and outside of her balcony window, there's nothing. There's just a cityscape. But when she looks out the window, there's a train, like, immediately, like, right there. She's like, this isn't my room. Like, where yeah. am I?
0: Yeah, and I think, like, I-, I-, I don't know how I missed that, but I think the first time I watched this, I, I missed that part that it wasn't her yeah. room. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then I think that's when we finally see the real perpetrator of the murders, right?
1: It's debatable. I think that trying to make sense of everything that happened, I think you can look at it a couple ways. Mm-hmm. Like To me, I don't necessarily think that Mimania did all of the killings, but I do think that he probably did some of them.
0: Oh, oh no, I was referring to, is is this where we see Rumi? Yeah, She busts yeah. in.
1: Yeah, yeah. So Rumi comes into the room, and she's dressed in this red outfit, this, like, Kind of tutu halter top thing outfit, and but we don't see that at first. We see Mima walk into the room in that outfit next to Mima who has just gone through this traumatic experience. And then there's a there's a motif throughout the movie of reflections of seeing uh, Mima sees the cham Mima throughout the movie in reflections. Often mm-hmm. you see it in the the reflection of the subway windows. You see it in mirrors. You see it. In um, the at the computer monitor, you see uh, Mima uh, appear in that as well. But this time, when Mima looks, the real Mima looks into the mirror in her room, or what is supposed to be her room. She sees Rumi dressed up in the red dress. So we actually see the reality of the situation in that mirror.
0: Mm, that's a really good point I, I really liked and there's just so much to cover without yeah. exhaustively talking about this movie right uh, but whenever she looks in the mirror the Mima that she sees like you said is dressed like she was in cham and she also seems to say the things she's afraid to say like right. uh, she looks at, at one point on the subway she's thinking about doing that scene she has to do yeah and and the Mima in the reflection says I refuse to do it
1: yeah, and I like, think that's yeah. the first time we see that Cham Mima is when she says that.
0: Yeah, it's like it's almost like she came out to sort of protect her. But right. then at some point be, starts taunting her and torturing yeah. her as much as the public is. As much right. as, you know, uh, I guess the, yeah, just the public does. Mm-hmm. And, and reflecting what Rumi's saying to her as well. And I think that's, that's why you kind of sort of put two and two together. You see in the mirror it's Rumi and then you're like oh, yeah, you know, this whole movie, <laughs> she was very <laughs> opposed to all of her growth, her personal growth. Yeah, yeah. You know, and her blossoming and her becoming a woman, she was very against all that. Um, and it makes she was sense. over.
1: She was overprotective at the same time, yeah, I think. Yeah, that's true, that's yeah. true.
0: But yeah. she, um, you know, uh, she she's much older than Mima, too. Yeah. And so yeah. I think that's also a point where you're kind of, Wondering, oh my gosh, so this whole time she was projecting onto her and wanting to be her, yeah, because she's past way past the point, whereas right sort of on the edge of it, she's further than that, yeah. And I think it paints like a weird, scary, like if Mima continues with this constantly looking back and wishing she was a pop star, is this what you turn into kind of thing, you know? Yeah,
1: that's true,
0: mm-hmm. um.
1: Kind of seeing, so when in those that final sequence, it, be, it becomes a chase sequence where uh, Rumi is chasing Mima and they end up going out into the street and the truck scene is revisited. Uh, but I think one of the things I really love about this is we don't see Rumi chasing Mima. We see Mima chasing Mima the entire time. But whenever there's a reflective surface, we see the reality of it. And we so when the Mima is kind of floating down the street, chasing the real Mima, in the reflection of the buildings, we see Rumi just sweat running down her face, like breathing so hard and heavy as she's like running down the street. So I think for people that say that this movie doesn't make sense, this whole scene makes sense of everything you need to know. To make sense of it like every it says that even though not every bit of it is explained it does say that like if you didn't know that everything that you saw wasn't real at this point you know it for certain
0: yeah I think that sometimes people have a hard time when instead of given exposition they're given visual cues yeah I mean I think what we've been talking about like the color red and Mm. the repetition throughout the movie um, signaling the next part of the movie, uh, right. giving you those visual and sound cues. Um, if you're not looking for that, or if you're not, if that's not a part of your like film vocabulary, yeah. I think maybe that that could make this part confusing. Um, sure. Nobody is specifically saying out loud. Yeah. Oh, Rumi's chasing me. That's what's happening. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's yeah. like So you're you're having to trust an unreliable narrator, I guess. But yeah. But because of all the clues you've been given the whole movie, I think it, it does make sense.
2: Yeah.
1: And I also... I think it, oh, go ahead. Sorry. I think at one point, even when Rumi first attacks Mima, we see that image of non-reality start to break down because Mima, she, she's not necessarily getting choked, but she's getting... Rumi, sorry, is getting pushed back from Mima, and mm-hmm. we see her face actually shift from Mima into Rumi not in a reflection, but in the actual reality of this situation, which is a really creepy scene to me.
0: Yeah.
1: But yeah, because like. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. 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 Because, yeah, because Rumi's, the character design of Rumi is a little unsettling to me as well. Mm-hmm. Because if you look at uh, Mimania, um, the, the bad characters in this movie, their eyes are a little bit too wide and their faces are a little bit, shaped just a little bit off so that they're a little bit unsettling. And if you look at Rumi, especially it's very obvious in this scene when you see it shift from Mima to Rumi, her eyes are set a little bit too wide and her, her just the shape is just a little bit off to make her, when you look back at the movie again, you see that like the, the character's design is pretty intentional to unsettle you a bit.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was reading too that it's to show that their perception, their view is skewed, just like their eyes yeah. are kind of, pointing right. in the wrong directions and yeah. um, they also uh, can't achieve what Mima does on a superficial level because Mimania I don't think we really mentioned it a whole lot but he's mm. sort of I mean he's disfigured yeah he would not stereotypically be in her circle right, right. because she's yeah. a beautiful actress that's surrounded by beautiful people and that's, right. that's at least the public's perception of what they're like Right. So they can't get close to her. And right. and I think another barrier for Mimania is that he, he can't get close to her not just because he's not famous but because of how he looks. Right. Um, and then the same thing with Rumi. Um, you know, there's a lot of pressure. I mean, I, I don't think it's too uh, sensitive to say that there's a lot of pressure in Hollywood, even over here to Absolutely. be really thin, to yeah. stay young. And so Rumi's the opposite of that. She's not thin, she's not young. And so that just adds to the like level of delusion she's experiencing. Cause she's seeing herself as, as Mima, but she looks completely different Right. and she's not on, she's like sort of in a servant role almost, even though she's her manager. Right. She goes from being the star to being support. Yeah. So it, it's again, it's like being surrounded by these people that are fans or supporting you, but also secretly hating you and, and um you know, being jealous of you.
1: Yeah, and Rumi is she she's not really in control of her life either at this point mm-hmm. because she's kind of middle management, I would say. The the male manager is the one that makes the decisions and so she's at the She's at the at the whims of him, but she also has to do what Mima wants as well, you know, so if you talk about, you can see that parallel between Rumi and Mima even at this point, not just yeah, uh, wanting true. to be a pop star, but the fact that she's not in control of her life as well, and I think you can see that with a lot of the females in uh, Satoshi Kon's work.
0: Yeah, and you know that that's interesting, it, it connects her to Mimania too. She doesn't have yeah. her own identity. Right. Her identity is always caught up in someone else. Yeah. Someone else has a spotlight or someone else calls the shots. And it's I mean, I don't think Mima picks up on it, but it, it is mm-hmm. a disconcerting look at her possible future because right. you know, is she just gonna grow up and continue to take orders and be told what to do? Exactly. That seems to be what a female role is in that world. And yeah. it's, it's, it's unsettling. Um, but, yeah, also in this scene, when she's being chased, uh, it's another violent scene. And once again, it's violent in a way that you don't really, like, expect. Like, when she mm-hmm. stabs her with that umbrella. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, I that, that scene when she stabs her with it and she pulls it out of her. Mm-hmm. And it's covered in blood. And Mima's just, you know, really disabled or disarmed at this point she's just kind of limping and trying to get away um and you're in my mind at least the first time i watched this i'm like well she's done for because right stabbed (laughs) to the side and she's tiny compared to this lady and she's this lady is really fast i think it's all over yeah but um she continues to fight back once again she's not uh submissive anymore you know she's Mm -hmm. Taking charge, but she's also like very. I think this is a really interesting part of the movie to me. She mm-hmm. runs, uh, she's trying to get away, and then uh, Rumi's wig falls off, right? Yeah. She's wearing like. So Rumi's wearing a wig to look like Mima's hair,
2: mm-hmm. and
0: it falls off, and the, in that moment, she is kind of snapped back to reality, realizing, or, or at least realizing that the facade is slipping. Right. And she goes to grab it. Yeah,
1: go ahead. Yeah, she's with the when the wig comes off, she has her own break with the reality that she's set up for herself. And you see it's not Mima chasing her anymore. It's actually Rumi. We see Rumi and then she puts the wig back on and then we see Mima again. And that's symbolic, or very emblematic of Rumi, her own headspace where she is in those specific moments. Mm hmm.
0: And then there's the scene where how does she get her to that like window that broke? I can't recall. They
1: Yeah, they're just she, Mima just keeps running and we don't really get a sense of the ge- the geography of the situation, mm-hmm. but they end up on a street like running down the sidewalk that's unusually free of people because I've been in Japan <laughs> and they're never that empty. But there's uh, no one on there and they end up in an alleyway and then there's this big like mirrored window building that the glass does end up shattering and uh, Rumi ends up going into it and it's another one of those scenes where it's extremely violent and It's where there's that second of oh my god And then the blood goes everywhere
0: and that that scene right there is pretty similar to black swan as well because there's literally a mirror stabbing double scene
1: very much, yeah.
0: It's just, it's sort of in reverse, because yeah. by the end of this movie, there's a fairly clear heroine, but in that movie, there isn't. Right. Um, but yeah, it, and again, it's like, it's, like you said, very violent. There's that beat, and it's also symbolic. They're crashing through a mirror.
1: Right. And we talked mirror's... about the motif of the mirror throughout mm-hmm. the entire film of being the the other reality and the, the projection of this persona that everyone really but especially people who are in show business and things like that put on but it also kind of mirrors the psychosis of people with the uh identity disorders like this it's also symbolic of that and it kind of draws parallels between those things of creating different personas intentionally but also unintentionally and so when she breaks through that when mirrored window at the end it's it's all symbolic but it's all action as well it's like everything comes together at that point
0: point. Mm-hmm. and this is another part I think we've talked about like thinking where the movie's gonna end yeah which is so genius it's like you know Satoshi Kon is faking you out and disorienting right. you constantly but yeah I kind of thought the movie was gonna end here
1: right like, with like her the... bleeding out in the alley yeah I thought okay yeah.
0: it's over then she stands back up and she goes into the street roomy yeah and we get that truck scene again. yeah so I love the parallel of the headlights being like the stage lights. yeah. And so she turns to it in her like delusion. she sees the crowd that she mm-hmm. never got to have or did get to have. we don't know right. Um, and she stretches out her arms and this part is really interesting to me. Mm. Lima saves her, yeah. Which would be a huge risk because, again, she's much smaller. <laughs> right. <laughs> but uh, she just, she saves her life which, it's like, I feel that that's symbolic because I think in, I mean, I, I don't know. I'm sure in real life you're a compassionate person and you wouldn't want to see someone be hit by a truck, but this person right. tried to murder her. Right. So, you know, she's in a way saving herself in a weird way. I don't know. It's It's like I think it's multi-level you
1: know yeah because i think at a little more basic level i think it does show that mima has finally started to see of course she sees rumi for who she is now and and what's been going on maybe maybe she doesn't know everything and can't make sense of it in the moment because there's so much happening and it just came to this realization but instinctually like she sees the connection with rumi and like Mima could be this woman at some point in her life, and she sees that, and I think it's that compassion within her. It shows that how much Mima has grown as a character, I think, for her to do something like that, to to have that compassion for someone, when a lot of the, almost all of the other people in the movie are shown to not necessarily have compassion for anyone else besides themselves and what they do. Even her fellow members of Cham were, like, making fun of her in a light little bit lesser way um talking about the the nude photo shoot and stuff they were like oh well, she's fine with that you know yeah, like kind of yeah. not necessarily looking down on her but speaking of her in a way that wasn't necessarily a connection to her and i think Mima did feel a connection to Rumi i think that's part of why she did it but it's also symbolic as well
0: yeah i mean she's her only I mean, even though she did all this, she was the only person ever sticking up for her, regardless right. of what her motive was. And right. really, it should be those girls that she turns to right. when she's trying to make these tough decisions. But she only had Rumi.
1: Yeah, she so. actually runs away from her the, those two girls at one point. Mm-hmm. Like, so I did like the... Uh, that was the one thing in the movie, I think, early when I was watching this, when I, in the first few viewings years ago, is the truck scene didn't... N- Fit for me early in the movie, like the first one, but then it finally pays off in the end and it makes sense. And it's kind of a because that the truck scene where Mima is almost hit by a truck and then wakes up in her room, it doesn't feel like it's part of anything else. It doesn't feel like it's part of the show. It's well, it can't be part of the show because that we see how Double Bind ends and that's not part of it. So it's almost like a precognition kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So it's, again, kind of messing with that timeline, but in her head as well. But I just like how uh, Rumi, at the end, when she looks up at the headlights and spreads her arms, that's uh, almost, that set up the shot is exactly like how we see Mima, really, for the first time in the movie. Because when the movie opens, uh, we don't see Mima's face, if I'm not mistaken. We don't see her face until we see Mima in the grocery store. The first time we see her from behind as she goes out to stage and it's shot from behind, just like that final scene with Rumi in front of the truck and the lights go bright to white. And that's when the perfect blue, uh, title screen happens. And that's the exact same shot here for Rumi at the end.
0: Mm -hmm. I know. Yeah, I totally, I, I I agree. I I think you don't see her face until. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah. I mean, I think that it's a really, really great ending and it wraps everything up. It makes everything makes sense. Yeah. But I do think you have to go back and see it again to catch everything. Um, oh, for sure. Because, I mean, you know, I, I've seen it multiple times. I don't, I don't know how many times. So, but, yeah. Uh, but it does all come full circle.
1: Definitely. And there's so many things that, this is one of the, this is one of the reasons why I keep coming back to movies like this and this one especially is there are so many layers and levels to it and it doesn't spell everything out. And kind of like I was saying, everything on the screen means something and there's little references like Jodie Foster. Uh, there's uh, subtle, uh, kind of pokes at its the own at the script really, mm-hmm. uh, when Shibuya and the producer of Double Bind are talking at the beginning of the movie, uh, the producer is like, or whoever he is, he asks the writer, "Well, who's the killer?" And Shibuya is like, "You're gonna have to decide soon." And so I think that's that's, that's a subtle nod to the script itself. It's like it's you don't you think it's just a joke at that point, but then when right. you realize that the TV show and reality are almost one and the same at times. You see that, like the killer you thought was the killer, may not have been the killer. And going back and trying to make sense of everything, you can make a case for it either being Mimania, Mima, or Rumi for most of the killings.
0: I like that because I think in a lot of my viewings, I I just decided it was all Rumi.
1: Yeah, but and for I me, think you're right? Yeah, for me, initially it felt to like it was Mimania up to the point. To where he attacked Mima after mm, that yeah. break happened uh, Rumi had to have killed the other uh, the male manager and Mimania himself because he couldn't he didn't commit suicide by stabbing himself in the eye sure. but um, but yeah you can see it the other way too you could see it all being Rumi
0: mm-hmm. I also like how uh, the killings themselves are symbolic like. You know, stabbing the photographer in the eye and the project. Like it was that kind of, you know, horror uh, serial killer that specifically punishes people based on what they did.
1: Exactly. And there's a that's why I referenced the, the Giallo, the Italian. Oh, yeah. Before, because it deals it's not slashers like American slashers are more. Uh, simplistic, I would say, for the most part. I'm not mm-hmm. being insulting. I mean, that's how they are. They, they're really well done, but they can't... Yeah,
3: they're formulaic the, a
1: little bit. Yeah, yeah. but the, this Italian precursor to that is more about obsession, and they had a lot to do with like morality and things like that, at least mm-hmm. a lot of the, the bigger ones. There was One of my favorite movies of that genre is a movie called Tenebrae, and uh, John Saxon is in it, and it's about a writer who... There's a killer on the loose who is seems like an obsessed fan. And he's killing women in the way that the characters in this writer's book kills women. And Mm -hmm. so there's it feels really close to Perfect Blue in that kind of setup. And there's a lot of meaning to all the murders in that movie, just like in Perfect Blue. So I think it's a very, it's a closer parallel to that type of film to me.
0: Yeah, and, you know, I think morality plays a huge part in the horror genre as well. Like, yeah. um, you know, if you watch a lot of horror movies, um, especially older ones, played into these tropes of, you know, doing when women do something sexual, yeah. really any character, but mainly women, um, right. they're, they're typically punished. And that's another interesting part of this movie where, you know, she's basically being told... Um, that, you know, everyone's turning on her, against her, Mm -hmm. Um, she's tarnished now, she can't go back. Uh, You are sort of have this foreboding sense that she's going to end up getting punished herself somehow, whether that's by herself or by Rumi or by Mimania. And then Satoshi Kon really flips the script with her getting the upper hand in the end.
1: Right. I think, yeah. yeah, definitely, that's very much a part of it. And Mimania was, he was influenced to do what he did by his own warped sense of morality and seeing she posed nude. That's the final straw. And like we were saying, that's when you saw his face change for the first time. And that's when he decided that he was going to attack her. So that's morality. The, I would say that it's the warped sense of morality that the idol industry puts on these people Mm -hmm. on, on the women that are idols. I think it's that, sense of reality that Cone is really playing with and maybe not necessarily a more universal sense of reality. Even though I do think there are definitely universal aspects of this movie that people online and celebrity and even minor celebrity status um, can relate to. I do think it's when we talk about that morality, I think it's that warped kind of um, more basic sense of reality that's pushed onto these people.
0: Yeah. And how... Because of that, uh, because of that environment, look what you're, look what you're promoting in a way, like commenting on it on a higher level, like really take these thoughts to their conclusion. Where does that lead you? That it's it's here. So I think that's pretty brave of him to, you know, to speak on that. Without it being so incredibly overt, like I feel that you have to know that about their culture and also... Um, I think you have to watch it a couple times to really get through that. So it doesn't really beat you over the head with it It's not preachy, but it's just saying, you know, take a look at this slice of of life And and let's see what see see it for what it really is, you know? Yeah,
1: and I, I absolutely agree because I watched this when I was fairly young and I was Mo- I was attracted to violent movies and movies that were action movies and horror movies that didn't necessarily have to have a deep message, even though as I would go along, I would realize that these extremely violent movies, a lot of them did have messages that were just put using horror as a visceral way of evoking that reaction, even though you may not necessarily realize that what it's pull- that's what it's pulling out of you, even though it is. But so there's that level. You can watch it because it's there's a lot of violence and it's a great uh, psychological thriller. Mm-hmm. But then you start to rewatch it and you find the layers and then the layers upon layers and everything else.
0: Yeah. And uh, I think I think movies like this probably I hadn't seen a lot of the films that you were talking about. So movies like mm-hmm. this really kind of opened up my uh my interest, you know, and seeing more things like this. Um,
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm a huge horror movie fan. My dad was, my, I was raised on horror. So, yeah, if you, if you're looking for more like this, I can, I have a few suggestions.
0: Send them my way. Yeah. See, see, I, and I mentioned this on some of the other podcasts. I'm, I'm an interesting case because I was raised basically to never watch these. And I think that's, that's a couple different things happening there one thing it was from a like growing up in sort of a religious household but also yeah. I think like I've, I've actually heard parents tell me like well I let my son watch this but not my daughter you know there's sort of yeah there's two kind of things going on there and so I, I didn't really get to see all this so seeing a movie like this from the f- girl's perspective mm-hmm. and, and it having all these elements I think it made me more open to the genre Because typically in movies like this, girls are just the victim. I mean, you know, and I'm I'm not criticizing that, actually, because (laughs) I do like horror movies a lot. They are. They don't really get a big moment at the end. But what's exciting and different about this one is that they do, you know. Right. Yeah. But um, so for Mima at the end... Uh, again, you think it's over,
1: (laughs) right? We're still not (laughs) Uh, done. (laughs) We're not
0: done yet. Uh, Mima, and this movie is only like 81 minutes, by the way. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, at the end, Mima is now an accomplished actress and she's at a mental institution to visit Rumi, which mirrors this happened in Double Bind. Um, Mm -hmm. but now it's reality, we hope. Um, right. And she... (laughs) She uh, Rumi still thinks she's Mima she's holding like some flowers but Mima visits her and as she's leaving she hears a nurse say hey that girl is a Mima look is that is that girl Mima and the other girl goes no it's not she, why would she be here and so yeah. the other lady goes well maybe she's a lookalike
1: alike which yeah. again
0: is like multilayered in and of itself but mm-hmm. then I really love the end where Mima gets in the car and looks at herself and says yeah. nope I'm the real thing
1: yeah, she's actually <laughs> looking towards the camera at that scene, too. I think yeah. she's looking at the, like, the rearview mirror in the car, but then the shot goes to, she's looking, like, at us watching this movie and like, yep, it's me.
0: Yeah, th- and the mirror thought, thing, again. Yeah.
1: yeah, I thought it was kind of cheesy. I still kind of do. Like, the, <laughs> the way that that's delivered, it's so bright and shiny. There's no clouds in the sky. It's a perfect blue sky at the end there. And perfect the work. fact that she, yeah, the fact that she looks at the camera... I'm usually not such a huge fan of, but in this movie, it makes perfect sense because we saw, like we said, the reflections of all these people, uh, or Mima specifically, looking at the characters in the movie. And finally, we're seeing it. We're actually part of this movie. We've been part of this journey the entire time, but now we're actually part of it at the end as well. So I think it's it was a good choice.
0: Yeah. I think there is a reading of it, though, that it, maybe it is a little too happy. I don't know. Yeah.
1: It could be because it does feel like one of those. It has that cheesiness factor of the Japanese television show of the double bind the the fans were talking about.
0: I would say the only thing that maybe makes it seem more real to me is it is really chipper. Yeah. I feel like she sounds and looks older.
1: Yeah. She does a little bit.
0: She delivers the line with a lot more confidence at least.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So
0: maybe that's, you know, she's like, I've fully transitioned or I've gone through my metamorphosis,
1: yeah. And if if we... The perfect metamorphosis, yeah. (laughs) yeah. And if we accept the fact that we were talking about the scene with Mimania, if we accept the fact that everything that we see on the screen, whether it's real or not, is symbolic of the mindset of the character... Then it doesn't matter if this is real because it shows that she did come through this and she's okay and she's actually living her life for herself at this point. She's driving herself for the first time in the entire movie. She gets oh, into yeah. her own car because she's always been chauffeured around or she's taken a train everywhere else.
0: You're right. Maybe it's kind of, you know, saying part of her journey is. You know, being able to completely make all her own decisions, like you're saying, you know, and uh, you get the sense from the way she says that Um, she doesn't need the approval of those total strangers guessing whether or not it's her. She just tells herself. And I think it's like indicative of, you know, she's in the driver's seat literally and she's um, making all her own decisions. So you yeah. you can imagine she's probably not doing any more club scenes. She's probably, right. you know, she's yeah. like, or maybe she is, I don't know. But um, yeah. and maybe she's okay <laughs> with it now. Um, right. But it's like you get the, the sense that she's completely in control. Maybe was able to break that cycle that Rumi was stuck in.
1: Exactly, oh. yeah. Yeah.
0: Oh. Oh. Well, <laughs> two hours later. <laughs> yeah,
1: I think we've rung about as much as we can out of this. But
0: yeah, I feel like I could go on, but
1: you know. I know we could. There's That's the thing with this is like, the movie is about 80 minutes long, and we've been talking for 140 minutes or something. Yeah. yeah. So it's... There's so much in this movie and it's so layered and saturated with just everything. I love movies like that because it does keep you wanting to watch over and over and over again. You can, I think most, a lot of people can make movies that are good for one viewing and then the next time you're like, oh, especially thrillers like this where you don't know, like it's not a murder mystery, but it has those elements to it. There is that mystery element to it. And when you learn the mystery, okay, well, I got it. Uh, Maybe one more time to see where the clues were and I'm done. But with this movie, I watched it all these years later, 17 years later. If The first time I watched it was 2000. I'm still finding things that I can see in different ways and I'm still thoroughly entertained by the entire movie. I think part of that's just the depth of it, but also the pacing of it. It just – it doesn't stop. It's just –
0: yeah, that's that's yeah. an interesting point. I mean, we're we're spending so much time dissecting and looking at each scene, but it's not a slow movie at all. Yeah. And yeah. and it's only eighty one minutes yet it's packing that much information into it. Yeah. Which I think is challenging for maybe American audiences. Sure. Um, you know, we're we're making sense of each scene because we we understand it, but if you're watching it for the first time and it's just going crazy, um mm. I mean I I watched Paprika with someone one time. Yeah. You know, another one of his movies, same thing. About ten minutes in, they were like, "Okay, what, <laughs> what's yeah. going on?" So, I mean, it, it's um, you have to kind of be patient, right? And and want that. But I, I feel that this is one of those movies where I mean, I truly do think that it's genius. But I will acknowledge that I'm biased in the sense that, um, you know, I I really like psychological horror. Uh-huh. I like horror. And I just, I like all those different aspects of this movie. So this movie is literally giving me everything I want.
3: Right. (laughs) Yeah.
0: So I can't be 100% objective about it, but I will say that a movie that that does all those things and does it well is very challenging.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I think, even though Satoshi Kon didn't live as long as other filmmakers, he did put out a number of films and uh tv shows but they were all spread out and it just shows that it takes a long time to create something like that and it's a very rare person who can have the ability to pump out one of these let alone multiple movies that are that are layered and and as deep as and well put together as something like this is
0: yeah well i guess we already answered the what keeps you coming back question (laughs) yeah (laughs) i think we thoroughly explored that part yeah um what what what's your pitch for this movie? Like, what do you say to a uh, what have you tried to say
1: <laughs> to a uh,
0: non-anime fan? How do you pitch this?
1: Basically, I'll approach it from the the angle of this is an anime movie for people who don't necessarily enjoy anime. It's a psychological thriller on the same level of an Aronofsky or a Hitchcock. Or even though I don't necessarily equate this with Hitchcock, I think that's a lot. That was like I said, that was on the DVD cover, and I think a lot of people jive with that name and they're like okay that piques their interest a little bit and i i sell it from the angle of you're going to forget that you're watching an animated film within the first 10 minutes because of how engrossing it is
0: and i also think you know going back to what you said about hitchcock i mean i think part of that correct me if i'm wrong but Mm. it's just hard to connect at the time this movie came out it's hard to compare this to a lot of movies That's true. That's definitely true. So they're having to compare it to something much older that it's not really connected to. Now you can say Aronofsky. Now you can say uh, Christopher Nolan. Now you can say uh, David Fincher um, that literally make movies like this almost exclusively. But before, I mean, maybe Kubrick I would have possibly thrown in there. But, I mean, he's just on such a high level that, you know, I don't know. It's it's not the same. But I think that may be why the DVD says that, like maybe it needs to be updated. <laughs> right. <laughs>
3: um, yeah.
0: But yeah, uh, I, yeah, I guess I, I would say, or I've tried to say, <laughs> I've pleaded um, <laughs> my case, but yeah, you know, this is one of those movies that um, allow yourself to be disoriented, allow yourself yeah. to go to experience what that character is feeling. And instead of seeing that as like some cheap, I think sometimes people see it as like a cheap director trick. Like, right. how, how easy is it to confuse us? Hey, it and, can be yeah, yeah. And, and hold all the cards and you know and at yeah. the end go the mailman did it you know but <laughs> <Right>. it's like <laughs> it's like i promised that he wouldn't do that like yeah the, this this director um and writer wouldn't do that with this movie uh it will give you a satisfying ending and if you're paying attention it, it will reward you you know yeah and and multiple viewings reward you even more
1: and Um, i know this movie isn't for everyone and i preface that because i do a lot of movie reviews and stuff and when i do it i give my opinion but i also try to look at it from who was this movie for and i don't think this movie is for everyone but if you do like the movies that we've talked about if you even just a little bit then yeah this is this is definitely one you should check out
0: this is like one of those movies i've always wanted to sort of kind of go through like this right I really really appreciate it
1: absolutely Um, I I don't have a whole lot because my best friend Joey like we watch movies together all the time and he's not an anime fan and like I said at the beginning of this I haven't been able to get him to watch it I don't really have people to talk to this movie about so (laughs) yeah this two plus hours has been really good because I feel like this is I've never really been able to dissect it in this manner i've done it in my head a little bit but actually talking to it and getting other opinions that i actually respect because i don't necessarily i look at the reviews like that and i'm like okay well no no it's hard to sift through all those things and i see some things where um, i don't really agree with their reading of it although it's valid i'm just like mm, i don't really see that in the film but to be able to have the dialogue is has been a great experience for me as well
0: good, good yeah i think sometimes when i would read things they were like oh just like other animes and they would name drop like cowboy bebop or something absurdly (laughs) different and you're like uh okay yeah (laughs) you have no idea what this movie was about but yeah so i I completely agree with that well um i think you're gonna have to come back with your (laughs) with your movie knowledge man i want i want to hear more about some of these uh slasher films absolutely and and just some of your recommendations um i think that um you know not not every time as nobody has the exact same movie interest, but yeah, I'm I'm interested in a lot of the stuff that you talk about. And I think it's cool that you have that background of growing up with horror too. Yeah. So you can kind of be a a window into that. So definitely would love to have you back.
1: Absolutely. I'd love to be back.
0: Okay, great. Well, thank you so much. And, uh, I guess I'll see you next time. All right. All right. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening. Chris and I had a great time discussing this film, and we hope you had a good time listening. I know this episode was long, but like I said, it was kind of a dream pick for me. If you guys have any feedback about this episode or others, please feel free to reach out to me on Twitter under AYALisaCosplay, uh, on Instagram at A-Y-A, N in Nancy, A-M-I, Lisa, or in our closed Facebook group, I Love That Movie. Our group is closed, but if you just send a request, I'll add you. It's just a safe space for movie lovers to discuss their favorite film, um, and it's judgment-free. The only rule I have is keep it positive. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe and rate the show. If you leave a positive review on iTunes, you'll be entered to win a $20 gift card to a movie theater chain of your choice. Right now, we're at 11 reviews, and I will draw once we get to 15. Everybody loves free money, and it's my way of giving back to you guys for supporting me. So thank you so much again, and I look forward to hearing from you.